chords Two of Mister. Toothy. <laughs> Shut up! The podcast is starting. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Celluloid Breakdown. I'm Joey Bonnier. Trump off. To the right of me is Mister Sean Faw. Across the table, we got Mr. Tim Snow. Tim Snow. That's all of us today. We are uh, we're coming to you with uh, another movie. <clears throat> this one is Rashomon, directed by Akira Kurosawa. Please clap. Um, this was my pick this week. Uh, I basically picked it because I wanted to continue the theme of kind of the movie we watched before. So we recently watched... Something about sand and now something about rain. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Good mm. job, Sean. Yeah. Um, but I was just, you know, that was a Japanese film. Let's watch another Japanese film. True. Uh, and yeah. I was just, you know, we haven't watched a Kurosawa film and I was thinking... He makes mad films. What? He makes mad films. It's mad a- films. It's a Philadelphia uh, colloquialism. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Yeah. Like yeah it's pretty common I make mad there. films. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, what's Philadelphia. It's a city on born the eastern raised? seaboard. Uh, there's a show. Why are you talking like that now? <laughs> are you really trying to? Yeah, you know, I'm just having a little fun with it. It's not how you really talk, though. No, not really. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's dive right in again. Uh, <clears throat> so, guys, tell us a quick little uh, synopsis of the plot and story. All right, so Sean, keep an eye out for when the wheels start to come off. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'll be your wingman anytime. So yeah, the the film is set in the Edo period of Japan. You already lost me. Which is, well, the the viewers, (laughs) the viewers, Sean. uh, No, (laughs) the viewers, Sean. No, so the film's set in the Edo period of Japan, which is between uh, like this, like... 1600 and the like mid 1800s. Sure. Um, it's a long and, movie. Yeah. And so it's, uh, <laughs> it's set at the city gate of Rashomon, which is like an ancient city in Japan or like feudal China or whatever. Well, Rashomon is the gate. Rashomon's the it's gate. of Kyoto and some other prefecture. Yeah. Prefecture. Yeah. So, so it, there's a terrible rainstorm going on and three uh, strangers. So it would seem are, Huddled underneath well, this, this to get out of the rain, and uh, one's a monk, the other's a uh, an old man, uh, woodcutter, uh, and uh, the third is just Color a design. just a dude. Yeah, he's just a common dude. Yeah, he's just a, fella. a commoner, a yeah, peasant. He's a, oh, he's a commoner. A yes, commoner. yes, he's a commoner, a, pe- a peon. Yes, yes. A uh, but uh, so they're all sitting there, and, and uh, the priest. And the old man seemed to be kind of shell-shocked, and the commoner's asking him about it, and they're like, oh, you wouldn't believe us if we told you. And he's like, oh, tell me. And they begin to tell him the story of a murder, but they tell it through uh, several different viewpoints, and all of those viewpoints conflict with each other. The kind of the witness testimonials yes, from the Yes, exactly. Trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, you know, they tell the story of, you know, it's like they kind of play telephone with a murder trial. Yeah. Um, and we visit each of these different perspectives through flashback. And we see these same characters uh, behaving in, you know, conflicting ways, uh, dependent upon who's telling the story. 
Okay, let's go through the three stories. Yes. So the first story that we hear is the bandits, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, Ta- no, don't even try. Okay. <laughs> Tajamura. Okay. All right. So. Okay, and so we were back. <laughs> we're talking about the uh, the story from the yes. outlaw. So Taju, we're starting Tajumaru. with the bandits storyline. And so, according to the bandit, he was just minding his own business, taking a nap in the forest. I relate. And uh, he wakes up to uh, to a gentleman walking past him with a lady on a horse, and the lady's veiled, and the fella's got a sword, and he's just you know, to the bandit, it's more trouble than anything's worth. So he just kind of goes to sleep. And then uh, as they pass, a cool breeze comes by, according to the bandit. And uh, this is told to us, by the way, through a really interesting, like, straight-on perspective uh, of the of the bandits sitting in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting shot. We'll we come get, back to that same perspective. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get back to that later. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, so he gets a, a look at this woman and is just entranced and he has to have her. So he chases down the, um, accompanist. Yeah. Chases down the couple trigger warning. <laughs> uh, he rapes the woman. Well, first he ties up. He, he, yeah, I, he, I never really got that part. Okay. So like, he basically kind of dragged there and I, okay, I, so I, I, can explain I, it. I did snooze for just a moment. Okay, so he says, I found this like ancient cache of weapons, like a bunch of ancient swords. True, yeah. And so he lures him and then he kind of ties him up and then goes back to get the woman. And then, yes, okay. ra- does rape her. Yeah, he does. So, okay, no, in his mind, in this, well, in this well, version, yeah, I yeah, forgot. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm so sorry. in his story, after he ties up the fella, he goes back to the lady and he, you know, and she's repulsed by him and she's like, where's my dude? And uh, then he kisses her. And she's fighting him, and then all of a sudden she's into it, which well, is just <laughs> well, yeah. But it's it's clearly unreliable it was, narrator. It was yeah, it was yeah. a foretaste of the problematic feast to come. Um, you, you missed before he kisses her, he drags her over to the husband right. to show her that he has bested him and tied oh, him up okay. to shame kind of him you know cuck him. Into, Again, I reiterate, yeah. I did snooze for just a moment, and I believe it was at well, this that's point. That's why we're here. Yeah. It kind of dragged, like you know. All right, but we'll but talk about that later. But 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 so so the the whole like all these stories are converging on the murder of this of this husband guy, right? Right. So in the bandits story, how does the husband die? I forget. I think uh, I was... Well, they fight and um, and the bandit kills the husband in, in like some, fair in a, combat. In a fair yeah. combat, in a very okay. honorable way. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, you know, we kind of end... Very adept, skillful combat. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I believe at that point we end his, uh, his flashback, Yeah, they both right? run away yeah. separately. Yeah. And yeah, the second testimony comes from the wife. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, Sean... Um, so her testimony is a little bit different in that she is like, well, she's raped in this one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like she doesn't, she's not into it. I don't know that that's ever. Uh, It's alluded to because they can't show it, but I think in this one, yeah, she is. Yeah. I think it's implied that she is raped in this one. Um, yeah. Oh, um, and then, um, 
So basically, she then is left with her husband alone, and then she looks at him and her husband, and, and basically the bandit runs oh, away. Oh, and he and, can't look at her. Yeah, well, he does. Well, he's, oh, the husband, well, no, he's, he's looking at her, and it's the coldest look. Right. It's right, but the, the, the husband the is rejecting her stare. because she has been She's yeah. right. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's so ashamed of I her. Forgot. There's this he, whole victim-blaming arc. Yeah, it's, it's not comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but- Okay, so yeah, then basically she grabs the knife and walks slower towards his body and then kind of passes out, basically. Yeah. And we and wakes up and he's dead. And we're I think we're left to believe that she, she killed kills him. him. Yeah. But she doesn't quite come out and say it. Yeah. Well, because she, she kind of goes mad in this right. like yes. dream. Cause she, yeah, like at one point she's she's so distraught by her husband being like Egh. <laughs> it really bugs her that he's just given her the silent treatment. And so she starts begging him to beat her. And then, and then, he's, still, and then he's still not giving, you know, he's just giving her the silent treatment. You well, know, it's, it's, he's really kind of behaving like a normal human being. And she's like, you know what? Wait, just he's, kill me. He's not just behaving like me. a normal human being. <laughs> okay. Nobody, nobody's really behaving like a normal human being. But, <laughs> but the neuroses, she's begging him to kill her. And then she just goes mad and starts laughing maniacally. Yeah. It's a through line in this movie. Um, and then she blacks out. And she blacks out, wakes up, and he's dead. I think, yeah, I, like I think it's understood that she killed him. Or she, that's what she thinks. Yes, it's understood, I believe. According <clears throat> uh, for us, the yeah. audience, yes. Yeah, and in her testimony, like, because every time that we get presented with uh, somebody's uh, truth, um, we see them kneeling in this like Japanese garden. It's like, you know, a gravel pit sort of thing. Right. Uh, well, someone's version of the truth. And they're staring, exactly. Someone's truth. You know what I mean? That's why their I said testimony. subjectively. Yeah, their testimony. That's the word I was looking for. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, so then we're on Sean to the, so basically they run away and, and then they, and then we're on to the third. So now we're up to the- On to the third. The My ghost. favorite- the medium. The medium, because the husband has a testimony too. And so we've got like this whole Whoopi Goldberg scenario <laughs> here. <where laughs> oh, I see where you're going. Yeah, ghost. Okay, yeah. I didn't. She's you done really other movies, Tim. You I, think so little of I me. haven't seen Ghost. I'm sorry. Oh, really? That's on you, I know, I know. I didn't get the reference at first. Wow. I didn't want to admit it. All right, so, do some so, after so, this? so 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 I know that we scene. we get to Sorry. the medium. No who's, ghosting. Shut the fuck up. We get to the medium where uh, she. Uh, damn it, Sean. <laughs> the testif testifying testifying the medium is testifying. <laughs> yeah, for the dead husband. Right. And his version of the story. Uh, I was I was just enamored by this because the the medium that that they have is terrifying it's just amazing the makeup yeah. on her and her performance and like it's 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 like a dance routine it's a film in and of itself it's the best part of the movie but uh uh i'm getting carried away there um the husband's version of the story is it's much more of like a cuckold thing uh can you guys help me expound on this a little bit uh, yeah. Do you remember this one? I forget actually a little bit of this one, so I'm reading. I forget. Exactly. I think yeah. that she, uh, basically they were, wow, I do forget so this one. So the He kills himself, basically. He, he was does? so. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, he does. He was so he does. ashamed that he walked into the woods alone and killed himself. Yeah. 
Oh, oh is that what that was supposed to be? Oh, yeah. no, 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 no. So, so, so he the 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 beginning story is the same in that he gets tricked by this bandit into going into the woods, gets tied up, yada yada yada. His wife gets raped, and after that, we see him tied up, looking at the bandit, who's like, "Oh my God, you are so good. I have to marry you now because I need it again." Right. Um. Right. Yeah. 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 And uh and so <laughs> and so the he 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 offers to take the woman away or whatever and then to the husband's horror she looks up and says whatever sure dude. Yeah. God. Like she literally wherever. said where, oh, wherever. wherever. But That's yeah, what same, she said. Same idea. She said wherever, like literally. Um she's like wherever. I'll go wherever with you. And, uh, and so he, well, the husband admonishes her and, and rejects her and says like, you know what? I'd rather lose my horse than, or no, I'd rather lose you than lose my horse right now. Like you're, you're shit. Uh, I think actually you might be confusing a few different. Am I? That the horse thing might be from a different. No, it's not. Dude. That is okay. It's really well, no, no, no. It's, yeah. It's a tough one. There's a lot of lot yeah, little details that are slightly well, different, and, and that's actually interesting because we're having our own Rashomon effect. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, don't watch the movie. Just listen to us describe the yeah, movie. Yeah, listen and then... to us fumble around and fuck it up. It's way better. Buy a mug. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so eventually, so so he had that he he admonishes he admonishes his wife, and he's like, you know what, fuck you, I don't need you, I don't need any of this, I'm way above this, I got a top knot, I'm out. And the thief, because she's like crying, and she goes to crawl back to the thief, and the thief's like, well, now you're not such a hot commodity anymore. And he kind of, you know, like admonishes her too. Yeah. And both of them go to leave her in the forest. And then she starts to go crazy. Well, before and that- And then starts laughing maniacally and turns it around on them a little bit because they're talking about how she's no woman to behave like that, to have been- That's like, the woodcutter How dare story. she get you're raped? Getting, you're getting into the third- the, f- the final story, yeah. Fuck, man. Because there's four stories. That's the thing, is the, the final woodcutter story at the end. But- yeah. Okay, hold on. Let me help oh, you. Oh, shit. You're right. Let you're, me right, you. you're right. You're right. You're right. You're okay, right. Okay, so we're still in the samurai story. So let me just finish the samurai story okay. really quickly. Okay. So the samurai, she basically. Okay, you're reading at this point because the samurai, like, I forgot yeah, that yeah. word. Yeah, I was writing. Reading. Yeah. So basically, after um, he <clears throat> admonishes her, she runs away. And then also Tajomaru then kind of runs away as well. And he's just by himself. And then he goes and kills himself with the dagger. And that's the end of his story. He's shameful about what happened and he kills himself. Then we get the woodcutter's story. Why are you guys? <laughs> Sean's watching me struggle with the with the microphone arm. <laughs> it is a funny. And I'm slowly but... just giving up over here. But either way, continue. Well, then we get to the woodcutter story, which is again interesting because it's the one that's not. It's the supposedly the most objective, but we're not quite yes, sure because it's so. At first, the woodcutter is said to what he's told the court. Because both the priest and the woodcutter in our like main timeline, the rainy under right. the grotto, whatever. In the trial. The well, prologue. They, the they oh, had no, just the come rain. from Sorry. the trial. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the priest and the old man had just from come from court. And the, the old man had testified that he found the body. 
And that's how he was tied into the whole thing. Right. But it turns not out that quite the, true. Oh, it, yeah, not quite true. He was fibbing. <laughs> uh, he was hiding in the woods the whole time and watched the entire thing go down. And it was much more pathetic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So the fight between the, the whole samurai thing, and the, I guess, and the band happens the right. Like, I don't think anybody disputes the first act, really. Right. Yeah, yes, you're right. So the 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 thief leads the guy into the woods, ties him up, you know, rapes the girl. Um, and then well, there, there's conflict over how what? antagonistic the girl was about things. Yeah, mean, uh, yeah, yeah. That's true. But yeah. we we know she was she was raped. Whether she was yeah, whether whether <laughs> it gave her whether whether it awoke something in her or not right. is up to debate. Well, Jesus Christ! I know it's crazy to say that, but yeah, fuck. <laughs> the, <laughs> this whole episode needs a trigger warning, dude. Well, yeah, that, but the the other aspect of that is her blaming the husband for not doing anything for not being a man essentially mm-hmm. for not defending her that's after she's well that like, happens in a few of yeah, the stories yeah, yeah that's so what i'm re- saying there's it's, it happens in a few of them that's one of the conflicting elements in, and that some of the stories she is this antagonistic character and in others of the stories she is all victim yeah well in this one we're still in the woodcutter story we're still in the right the yeah. final so that final story he i don't does he is he like promising to marry her then Still in the final story? I think so. No, no, he doesn't. Yeah, he he yeah, he begs the wife to marry him, okay. but the woman instead frees her husband and then basically says, Fight for my love. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She says, You're you're no men. Neither to, of you are men. Yeah, neither of you are men to blah 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 blah. You gotta fight over me. And so they both to like to prove their although they were, they're very reluctant to do it. Yeah, they they well they start to fight. The thing is, is like Throughout this whole film, both of these guys have been these stoic, statuesque, or well, the 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 samurai has been the stoic, statuesque guy who's been, you know, he's been fooled, but he's, you know, he's trapped and he's not gonna not gonna give an inch, sort of thing. You know, you don't really see any emotion from him at all throughout the film. And the uh the the bandit uh by contrast is like this animal almost, you know, he's laughing and jumping around and he's just crazy. You know, he's almost frothing at the mouth. And then they actually start to fight in this more objective retelling and they're both total cowards. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting. But, uh, so we get this long drawn out fight of these two people who desperately don't want to be fighting each other. Uh, and eventually the, 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 the bandit. The bandit wins, you know, and he he ends up throwing a sword through him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know you could shot put a sword, but uh, <laughs> you can shot put just about anything. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, he made believe. it work. But yeah, and uh, it's sort of it's just kind of pathetic in that retelling. And I am I missing something? No, except at the that's basically how that ends. Except there's missing one thing at the end. Now we have the commoner. We come back to the yeah. Now we're back, back to, to the Rashomon. Rainy. Back to the gate. Uh huh. And now we have the commoner kind of accusing him of saying, "Wait a minute, hold on. Something's missing in your retelling of it." Something's missing in your retelling. What is missing in my retelling? Be what what drove us to that confrontation? 
Oh, yeah, you're kind of skipping something. So we get back to her fucking baby. That wasn't yet. Oh, yes, you're right. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. I skipped like, the baby. I skipped the baby. <laughs> no, yeah. Don't skip yeah. the baby. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be a button. <laughs> sorry. That was, I apologize what, for that. What is that from? Is that a thing? It's dinosaurs, uh, not the mama. <laughs> oh no don't kick the baby it's, it's still fucking, it's south, uh, park south park is what it really yeah. is okay. whatever 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 sorry guys but, again <laughs> all right so let's go what about okay so, so we're we back, back to rashomon, to rashomon and the all of a sudden there's a baby crying yeah and so they go to to find the source of the noise and lo and behold it's a baby but the ba- or not the the commoner goes to find the baby first, and what he's he he starts taking the the kimono that the baby's wrapped in, and he's just kind of walking away with the kimono and leaves the baby in this sun hat. <laughs> um, and uh, the old man and the priest come over and they're like, "The fuck, dude! Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro, not cool. <laughs> Whoa, that's harsh." <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, um, they, they come over and they're like, hey, you, the, that's fucked up. Uh, the, the woodcutter gets in his face. Woodcutter gets in his face and there's kind of a, uh, talk about how messed up that is to steal something. And, uh, the commoner counters back with, you know, who are you to judge me? What happened to the dagger? Apparently there's a dagger, you know, he infers that, uh, the old man stole and sold the dagger, which the old man really just cops to. Um, he did. He did. Yeah. He stole it. Yeah. And then uh, after that... Uh, That's pretty much just kind of fizzles well, out, and then the old man decides to uh, take the baby. Right. So then the... Yeah, exactly. But that's a big deal. That's Is the that climax. A, that's the... Does nothing happen between then and then? Well, okay. So the commoner leaves, and then the woodcutter approaches the priest, and the priest is kind of like admonishing him and saying, hey, basically, I have no faith in humanity anymore. Yeah, yeah, and then he, but he's holding the baby. Oh, and yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. the commoner's le- the commoner. Sorry, the woodcutter says, "I'll take the baby." Everybody has a diatribe. I have six kids already, and it basically implies what's another. He, yeah, he, he's going to take another kid, and he stole the knife, the, um, the you know the the pearl bladed knife because he needed the money to take care of his kids. So, yeah. thus restoring the priest's faith in humanity, and I guess all is good. Yeah. <laughs> and we know this because the priest yeah, looks at him yeah. and he says, you've restored I my think faith you've restored my faith <laughs> in humanity. He does say. Yeah. <clears throat> he does say that. Okay. And, that, and then it just, yeah. no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm oh, not going to do it. This isn't an always sunny fan podcast. <laughs> you do it on every I do, podcast. I do so many sunny references. Fair it's enough. because it's all I fucking watch. All right. Well. Except for Oshima. I like Except the fact, guys, I like the fact that we struggled through this story. Because yeah, yeah, it's really, it's our own Rashomon effect. It is. And yeah. you just realized that again. <laughs> it's radio, Sean. <laughs> it's a story within a story. Yeah. Um, I think that it's it's a really fascinating thing on many levels. Um, I, I think obviously it's so copied that we kind of, it's just a way to tell a story now. You well, know? the Rochamon effect is a Wikipedia-able thing. It is a apparently a term that is used for an entire class of movies now that is told through this format, where you know your char- your standard character narrative is following one character through a story, and that's you know your. Uh, uh, your, your hero that is going to be the the stand-in for the audience, but this is 
a, I, I, I know it's not a new style, but it is attributed mostly, especially in film, to the Roshima, Roshiman effect. But the idea of, you know, seeing yeah. the same thing over and over from multiple different angles. Now, obviously, this leads to a couple of things. Like, why this specific story? And specifically, like, the fallacy of that. Or the fallibility the, the fact that of everything that. is, yeah. Every, uh, the fallibility uh, of subjectivity. Well, that, that sure. and just the unreliability of witness testimony in general. Much better way to say that. <laughs> Do you think, okay, so they could have, that's what I think I'm getting interested towards is that it is, they could have kind of used this storytelling technique in other stories. Why do you think this specific story works really well with that split narrative? Well, even now, I mean, the, the sort of connotation of sexual impropriety and those sort of he said, she said, you know, um, encounters uh, lends itself very well to yeah. that sort of conflict in a, you know, courtroom drama, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Like the the idea that it's literally up to what you said, like we agree on the actions, we agree on what happened, but it's like what you said and what happened in between that actually matters. And that's where the fallibility yeah. of the memory comes in. It just well, seems to always- Oh, and your, you know, own personal, you know, forces. Yeah. And it, it seems like- what. Your question was, why does it work with this story? And like, it works, it like, I'm, I'm really reticent to say that it works because it's so fucking problematic, Okay, but like it works well with this story because there's just such a, 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 a historical victim doubting when it comes to rape. Yeah. You know? And oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and so it's it's so yeah. easy for uh for Plus a also, perpe- for a rapist yeah. to to implant that she wanted it defense, yeah. you know, and so it's easier with this story for things to get muddy in the in the minds of like a more reductive audience, which is what sure. this was aimed for. Um, I think you're right. I think. Um, we do, we have kind of a double crime here because we also have a murder and a rape. Yes. So it, it hits on both those kind of crime dramas. But only one happened to a man, Joey. Yeah. Uh, they did even say as, you know- Why did two- I agree with that? I, I guess I wasn't <laughs> fucking listening. I was reading the side of a can. I don't like that. I take it back. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah Sorry. That's fine. You don't have to be on record as liking that. <laughs> just clear my name. It's fine. I only want to be known for the Clapton Kid jokes. Yeah, I know. Sure. When you run for office later, they'll, they'll go back. Sean. Yeah. Um, I think that it, it's um, it has to. It's really great for crimes. You know, whether, whether you're yeah. breaking down crimes, whether it's especially at a simple crime. And I don't mean simple, but I mean like three people, two people. Something happened. Not a lot of witnesses. It, you know, that's how crimes often are. Life is messy. And I, li- I like the how realistic this story is when it comes to crimes because crimes are messy. Memory is messy. You know, people are messy. And I like that they kind of talked about all these different themes surrounding one simple, and again, maybe two simple crimes. And again, maybe simple is not the right word, but I'm just saying that they're, uh, you can kind of- na- Clear cut. Yeah. Narrow the focus or, or even, yeah, cut and dry cases, but they're cut not dry. They're not really cut and dry. Um and to me, though, like the whole thing I just kept thinking about was kind of how, I guess, in thinking ahead of this, ahead of its time, this was just in that, like, so much research now says that the witness testimony is just so 
conflated and jumbled and can be so manipulated that it is very unreliable just in general to rely on witness testimony for damn near anything. I think it's interesting that's true, but it it also, to your point, I think that that's why we have the multiple witness testimony. So like if we have, for instance, the woodcutter and the woman have the same thing, they match up, we can assume that's true. But if there's only one thing in one story, we assume that's not true. So you're right, witness testimony is inaccurate, but once you compare it to four of them, we still get a more complete, get a complete truth, picture. Yeah. Which you're right is very modern in, you know, the criminal justice system. Exactly. Either, you know? yeah. um, which is pretty damn cool. Uh, um, again, 1950s Japan here. It's so, uh, ni- uh, 1950. 1950. I right? thought it was like 1150s or. Oh, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is interesting. So let's. let's Let's lead. Actually, let's before we go into the history, let's go into the characters a little bit because we do have the three main characters and the acting. I'm going to go through that. So, uh, actually, let me ask you, uh, Sean, who would you think was the most compelling character for you? I'm curious. Um, I mean, I don't mean whose story did you believe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the most fun to watch was the thief or the bandit. The bandit. I mean, just like I, I just really enjoyed his performance once I started to really understand what was going on and seeing it change and evolve through the different stories, like how his fighting style was similar, but very oh, different so perspective yeah, that's that's so between true. the different, you know, his body language story. changed yeah. between each but story. He, he still had a very, like, as we were talking about, he had like this sort of visceral, like, um, uh, almost like feral. untrained feral sort of fighting style. And it compared to the, the other guys who was like much more classically trained fighting style and both of them maintained that, but they maintained it. Uh, they, they, that acting adhered yeah. to the level the that motivation it, changed. Well, the, not, not even the motivation, but like the, the level of skill changed from telling to telling. Yeah. So from each per each time, like when the bandit was telling the story, they were engaged in this, you know, sort of yeah, very swords 23 times. Exactly. Yeah. And no one's ever <laughs> yeah. done that before. <laughs> and it was a very sort of arrow Flynn, almost sort of uh, sure. blocking where there's a lot of things going on and a lot of action, a lot of, you know, uh, aggressive uh, attacks at each other. Whereas when we finally get to the end and we see that in its final form, they are both like cowering from each other, kind of moving in similar fashions, but in a completely different um, sort of background and mindset. And right. They both lose their weapons. They're clawing at each other. Exactly. Like they're, they're uh, the bandit is like, uh, you know, spinning around on the ground and doing like kind of like animalistic sort of movements, but it's more in like a scurrying, fearful way at the end, yeah. whereas it's a more aggressive, combative way in the beginning. So the band that is played by Toshiro Mifune, who's obviously very famous to a lot of people, not me, because this is the first Kurosawa movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. Never seen any Kurosawa, and obviously he's known for his collaboration with Kurosawa. He's in Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress, Stone of Blood, Yojimbo, a lot of famous films. Um, I thought he was the bright spot of this film. I think you're right. I think he was, at first I thought he was just kind of one note with his laughter. Yeah, yeah. But then I realized through each retelling of the story, he changed it up a lot. And I was like, wow, this guy's got uh, some range, first of all. So Mm -hmm. I thought he he could play a lot of different cool characters and this story demanded that. So I don't know. I thought for one, it showed off his range. Um, I don't know. Do you agree, Tim? Yes, I do. I do. Uh, yeah, so that, that's the first time I've seen him too. So I'm excited to maybe see Seven Samurai coming up. And, and he also, he was like, you know, he 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 really shined amongst some duds 
if I may be so bold. Who are those dots? Yeah. Um, point a bony finger in which direction? I will point two. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that the wife and the husband uh, were both. Yeah, yeah. You know, could could have could have been better. They showed up. Yeah, they were there. You yeah. know, it was it was very. You know, uh, I don't <laughs> I I don't know okay. the terms enough. You know, but like the kabuki acting is kind of over the top, right? Yeah. Yeah, they were just kind of over the top. Everything they did was too much. Her more so, I I would go the other way on the husband. The husband to No, me, see, that's what I mean. It, everything they did was too much. So when he did nothing, he did way too much nothing, dude. Okay. Really? You, you sold okay. me on that. Yeah. I can see where you're getting at. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing. And that's probably the direction he got. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? And both of them did were the weak enough actors that yeah. they just put all of their strength into it. I think you're doing a little kabuki critiquing, if I'm being honest. <laughs> oh, fuck. Wow. I don't mean that in a mean way. No, 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 no. I invite criticism. Of your criticism. Yes. <laughs> no, I no. just I just disagree. I think they were pretty good. I just that oh. I, I think they weren't great, but I think they were well serviceable. I think they were good in that I think that uh, like this is what's known as a Jidageki film. Okay. Um, which is basically the Jedi Order died out thirty thousand years ago. Fuck off and die. You will not derail me. This is a Jidageki film. And uh which is basically it's the Japanese form of a soap opera. A lot of it is TV films. Um, and a lot of it, it this almost like watching this film, it's not quite thinking opera, about this but, film. Mm, well, hold on. It means pure. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Means pure. Go ahead. Period drama. Period drama. So it's sorry. not necessarily about that specific form of acting. What? I don't know if it's necessarily that, like that form of like over the top acting, although it does. Okay, I'm sorry. Why don't you just continue? I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, 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 no. Because like you're right. Well, I don't. It, it might also use those forms, but I think generally just refers to that period of of time that like that. Well, period. it also yeah. It's it's like usually set. I think it's usually set in the. Well, now I gotta the Edo period. What you said earlier. Yeah, in the Edo period. Oh, I didn't say that on the mic though. 1600 to you 18, you did, oh, I did. 18, middle Whatever. 1800s. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, it, but you're right. It's kind of like a folk story. I think in some ways it's a legend. It uses a lot of those styles that I think are exaggerated. Well, the, the, we were, we were talking about how the makeup was kind of like outlandish a little bit. And I was looking her. into that and it actually, the, the, the makeup on her was actually a lot more historically accurate. Um, but the, the Jidageki, I was reading, uh, this film almost, it's really tame to be considered a Jidageki film from what I read, because okay. it's, it's all, you know, there's, there's like, uh, certain types of makeup that, uh, are worn by the actors. Uh, it, uh, you know, it's usually what? a kind of a heavy drama, so, but like, seriously, what's the deal with their fucking eyebrows, Ben? Oh, so her eyebrows. <laughs> well, specifically, Sean, explain what. what yeah, what why don't you like. just open up with that? Yeah. <laughs> um, it seems like her eyebrows are removed and then, like, maybe makeuped in as like two little circular. 
panda puffs above each eye. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah, it, it, yeah just black circles. Yeah, yeah but like kind of weirdly faint and yeah. So yeah, so yeah, that uh, is actually pretty good. That's that's pretty spot on. It's uh, it's called hikimayu. Uh, and it's the practice of removing the natural eyebrows and then painting smudge-like eyebrows onto your forehead. Uh, and that was really popular in pre-modern Japan. Hiki, meaning, uh, hiki means pull and mayu means eyebrows. So like legit, just, you know, you oh, eyebrow either, really. yank. Yep. Uh, and it was like an aristocratic sort of thing. Um, and it was, it was used from, and this, I'm starting to paraphrase, but, uh, it was to reframe the face, right? And it was thought to be prettier. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's lost on me. Well, what's interesting to me is the medium had the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. It the medium, the medium had the same thing, uh, but like it was almost like the, she the had happy sad much. clown. Yeah, yeah. Right. It weren't quite the, the same eyebrows. Yeah. But it is same. Same idea. Yeah. Same idea. Using um, painted but, eyebrows. But the that the interesting thing is is that's just period. That that would have been common in that period right. that the film was being. Um, yeah, I assumed it was like an aristocratic thing because she was like an aristocratic woman, mm-hmm. you know, with yeah. the veil. And the, I mean, before we we really saw her, she was wearing this big hat with a veil, yeah. and you know, no one could see her. And it was obviously that she was like, you know, the high yeah. class. And and so to us as first time viewers, it was you know we we were kind of certainly noteworthy. Yeah, it was noteworthy to us, but it's just, it was a period thing. It was a popular aristocratic women, uh, you know, like the powdered wig of Japan. Well, let's think about it in terms of acting and character, because it does kind of put your face into a static kind of expression. That's true. In some ways. Yeah. She almost always looked surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But that could be a good or a bad thing, honestly. You know, it's almost like... um, and maybe this has been made comparison before, but like you know, the masks and, you know, the Shakespearean kind of theater masks, the comedy or tragedy. It's almost like you're, you know, you're wearing that one emotional time, but, it, you know, that can, you can play off it or it can be obvious. You know, if you're always sad mm-hmm. in a film, you can be like, wait, why is she sad? And, you know, there's a lot of contrast you can make. Whereas sometimes, or the other way, just, okay, it's boring. You're the same expression the whole time. So, yeah. I don't know. Did you guys, were you thrown by that? D- did you kind of think maybe she didn't have a lot of range because of that? Because her face didn't have a lot of expression. I think that she just, she was always, cr- she was either crying yeah. or laughing maniacally. She was nothing but yes. range. <laughs> That's know. true. I mean, they were extremes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was, you know, there wasn't really, there were there were no muted tones in her performance I do whatsoever. think there was a few nice moments. It was I very theatrical. Like what? Like Because I might, you know, There was a few moments things. where they were kind of going back and forth between close-ups and she kind of had like, you know, sweat on her face and she kind of- Oh, some of those were really, yeah. There was a lot of times where she was basically crying or like, honestly, like mucus coming out of her nose. Yeah. It was like really natural. They really viscerally played up, like in a makeup sense specifically, they really, really played up how hot and muggy the jungle was. To me, the sweat didn't work. The, the beads of sweat like literally looked like someone just hosed them out with a spray bottle right before. Well, I mean, it did. It did uh, yeah, I'm sure that's what they did. But it didn't look and feel like real sweat. It was beading and it mm. just didn't like sit right. I and understand that, what you're saying. I agree. It, and that's just like one I mean, of those- I, It didn't bother me at the time, but right, now right. that you're saying it, I do agree. Yeah, it's totally one of those little nitpicky things that like, 
you know, people that are in the industry definitely notice more than people that aren't on film sets a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like my deal with ice. I can't stand when ice doesn't float in a drink. And you will see this constantly if you look at the drinks on bars. Completely yeah. agree. Abolish ice completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus, fuck you. I agree with you, Sean. I nice that, slip. Yeah. Sean, I, we got it on tape. Good. You agree with me? Yeah, that's <laughs> solid. No, we need floating ice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back to uh, some of these characters. Oh, sorry. Were you, um, were you continuing? I'm sorry. No, I was just going to mention that if you really want to see some eyebrow acting, go check out uh, Last Christmas. Uh, Amelia uh, Clark. Yeah, Amelia Clark's eyebrows oh, are God. on fucking overload in that movie. They're gorgeous. They should be getting oh, their own salary. That. They were fucking. Oh, everything about her is wonderful. I'm, oh, not, shut a, up. I'm not a huge fan. <sighs> Big fan. She's well, very, very. 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 Continue, please. That's no, I mean, like, honestly, that kind of sums it up. That's Heather's speak. I liked her in Solo. I'm going to be honest. Is that Heather's? I thought she was good. Yeah. Never She's very, very, very. <sighs> All right. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I think that the characters themselves have their own certain style. Um, but let's quickly talk about the other two big characters. The, you know, the R2-D2 and the C-3PO. <laughs> The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes. The uh, the the woodcutter and the priest. Yes. You know they they were, you mentioned Tim during the during the movie that they were always there at the witness testimonies, mm -hmm. always in the background of the shot. Yeah. Always there. It well, it almost seemed like like you know we'll we'll be watching films sometimes and I'll and I'll just spot something that's like oh that's the beginning of a trope, you know, mm. um and I just I feel, I can't. Pinpoint yeah. something, but I've seen that. I've seen that shot before. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. where there's just someone always lurking in the background and it kind of gives you this, it, it, it kind of implants in the viewer a sense of just like, oh, we're being judged. Mm. You okay. know, I see what you're oh, saying. I, I was thinking the other aspect of it, of like introducing a character that you don't really know is important until much later in the movie. Oh, see, well, we're already introduced to them. I and so we know that they're important, but we just have this feeling of being watched. Yeah. And it kind of creates this subconscious oh, dis-ease yeah. in the viewer. You're Does right. There's a lot of those shots where someone's looking through someone. There's, you know, the 50-50s profile shots, and there's always someone kind of coming through yeah. with looking at you. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I like the idea that they're always in the background, always judging, always looking at you, because it gives you the feeling that you are on trial uh -huh. um, completely. I mean, we don't see any any judge the whole time. You know, we're always looking at the yeah. witness. That's one thing I got to jump in there. I really disliked the- I hated the it. The documentary interview. Uh, Where they re repeat the yeah, question. Put the question yeah. in your answer sort of thing. It was- um, yeah. It just- it, to me, that broke the fourth wall like completely. Um, you know, just would you rather a, have just had a judge there? I'd rather have even just a VO of a judge or like just go into an answer of like, you know, we do the cutaway and cut yeah. into the answer already being said. It's um, a really simple thing to write around. Yeah, yeah. It's not a hard thing to write around. You know, All it's right. just better dialogue. Kurosawa, it, listen up. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's you just, it's, fucking plebeian. It's one of the things <laughs> that made it feel very stage play to me rather than cinematic. Yeah, and there's yeah. much that is cinematic about this movie, but there's also a lot that is very, um, you know, you could very easily see this being put on as a high school play. Yeah. So you're talking about it as a high school play. It was a short story beforehand. It was written in 1922. It's called In a Grove. Uh, mm -hmm. It was basically adapted off In that. a Garden, yes. maybe. Um how did the? Do you know how the 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 plot of In a Grove? I didn't. It's have, very similar. 
Oh, so it's very similar. Very similar. There's a murder s- in a grove and- And how talk. does it differ though? There's a few specifics like with the knife and with like how the, how specifically things were shot. You know, the violent struggle wasn't quite as violent. So basically, but the idea is pretty much the same. It's a very close adaptation. Every uh-huh. every character is one thing that's slightly refuted. But is the another. spirit of the story the same? Yeah. Is it a, so it's about the, the unre- unreliability of witnesses or like- Yes, but what's so fascinating and people have- talked about this is that one takes place after World War II in 1950 when America is literally a military occupier of the country. And the other one takes place in- an allegory from. Right. The other one's 1922. Written before. Right. A long time before. So it's like, it's such a crazy drastic time period, but- Very similar. You can use those themes. Where was Japan at in 1922? Same place it is now. Versus where? <laughs> no, they were an up-and-coming <laughs> empire. They they beat Russia in the Russo-Japanese War in the early 1900s. Okay. So they had a really powerful navy, and they were up-and-coming uh, So they, But they hadn't invaded China yet? You know what? I think they were pretty close to it. Okay, uh, so— th- That might be 30, uh, but we're, yeah, we're getting there. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. They were probably occupying Korea, if I'm correct. So it's an up-and-coming superpower at the time that In a Grove is written. And then this film is made in almost a failed state. Literally. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, though, but China and Japan have been going back and forth for centuries, right? Like, yeah. Like, one takes over, then the other takes over, then the other takes over. I mean, like, yeah, they have beef. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's fair to say. Um, but I think that's, okay, so there's that whole Kobe idea- beef. We're looking at in 1950, so it's not just Japan, it's a U.S. occupying Japan. And Rashomon itself is, we didn't really talk about it, is this gate, but it's a fucking disaster area. Yeah, right? it's, it's bombed co- out. It's bombed out. We can't really see any of the city because the city I was is- wondering, because I was reading about it, I don't know that it was bombed out from the war. I think it was just no. a ruin. Oh, yeah, yeah. We don't yeah. know why. Uh, at least I don't think they say. But what's interesting is I was reading about in a lot of, uh, you know, the, the Edo era, Tokyo itself or Edo at the time was a million people. Like that's a crazy dense amount of people to live in one city. And they said that basically the city would burn down every 20 years because, right. because it was, or 25, whatever. So because it was, made, it was made of of wooden houses, they're all very close to each other and they were heating their houses with, with, coal, with, uh, with charcoal. And so it was very flammable. So they were used to that. And he even mentioned in the beginning, famine, fire, earthquakes, all these things. So they were like used to almost this cycle of death. Sounds like and, LA. <laughs> Not quite. We haven't had. Guys, stop that, Sean. I'm crossing my fingers. <laughs> uh, but I think it, the, that idea is very interesting. That you know, every huh. f- few cycles, we have this sin that comes and takes over yeah. and, and wipes out everyone. And the gate was an intentional. So I just read this. The gate was an intentional uh, symbol by Akutagawa. To uh, signify the the ruined state of the of Japanese culture and like the moral decay that was going on in ah. this rise of imperialism. So modernity comes and Japanese culture suffers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ambition, you know, kind of takes over sure. reason or whatever. You know, you could put it in okay. a million different but ways. I think that um, that's all amazing, but I mm-hmm. think um, it's 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 interesting to look at it through that. Atomic era, I think to me, at least for Kurosawa's sake, because, you know, the society has to kind of rebuild, right? There's no more emperor, right? You have to kind of like, they're trying to rebuild a democracy in its place. 
Yeah. So at the end, we have this baby, you know, the rebirth, the the rejuvenation of faith. Again, it is a little cheesy, but I think that's, to me, the message there is that throughout all these horrors and, you know, because the, the, one of the messages is everyone horrible. Like Sean yes. kind of agreed. And that's, that's Sean's thing is like, yeah, everyone's run reliable. Everyone is selfish. Everyone's looking out for themselves. Mm-hmm. That commoner took the amulet and the kimono and says, everyone is selfish. Mm-hmm. And that is one takeaway from this. But then Kurosawa comes to say that, hey, you know what? There's a little baby here. The commoner actually isn't as bad as you think. I'm sorry, the woodcutter isn't as bad as you think. He takes the baby and restores his faith in humanity, thus saying, you know what, Japan, even though you've been through a lot of horrible things and you probably ha- are, are cynical about humanity. Mm-hmm. There's still a little faith, a little hope. Yeah. Yeah, I don't disagree. With oh, okay. I was looking for a disagreement from Sean. No. No, I mean, that that's, <laughs> that certainly seems to be what it's saying. And yeah. I, I'm still not in a, uh, you know, a completely optimistic mindset to say that it's saying that that's, that everyone is either good or bad you know it, it is a a reflection on humanity itself and that you know we are just part and parcel to what we are dealing with uh our history but also our current events so all of those things are going to come together to whatever decision we need to make at any given time sometimes that's going to be a good decision sometimes that's going to be not as beneficial to other people mm-hmm. but that is you know, just part of the human experience in general. I have a question, and I forget. Did we watch a German film in yes. 1950? Oh, um, uh, yeah. Like post-war. Which ones did we watch? Uh, Karl Heinz. Um, but that was- Germany or Zero was a French Rosalini. film. Oh, true. No, 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 no Italian. Rosalini's Italian. view of Berlin. Yeah. What which, was the, uh, Ivan's Childhood? Yeah, Ivan's that was childhood Tarkovsky's Russian. review of, of the war. Yeah. We, you know, I think I would like to, because I want to make a comparison. I'm trying to think of how- the Japanese in post-World War II, you know, through cinema dealt mm, yeah. with the atomic bomb. And it's different, obviously, you know, Dresden was bombed as well, but how the Germans viewed it versus them. And I think it's a very fascinating comparison because, you know, both were defeated, both had to wrestle with their past. Viva on vacation! <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, you know, you have to wrestle with your past because on one hand, Japanese cinema has to say, yes, we love our past. Uh, and that was interesting too with the release of this film is that, um, the Japanese government didn't want this film to represent the country. They wanted to give an Ozu film to represent the Academy Awards for an mm. honorary award, mm. but this one was more loved by the Westerners. Yeah. Um, why do you think that was? Why do you think this one was more loved as opposed to an Ozu film? I honestly, I don't know. Do you don't think this, why this would be more appealing to a Western audience? I. What's an Ozu film? Ozu. An Ozu uh, film. We've never seen any, yeah. No, we saw an Ozu film. No, we saw a um, Mia's not oh, Mia's. shit. We saw Sancho the Bailiff, which is not Ozu. That's Miyazaki. No, no, no. Oh, shit. Fuck. Uh, Derek's gonna kill us. God, we <laughs> sound like assholes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but the idea. Patreon. We, it's a film podcast. Yeah. Well, well, it was. Hold on, I'll look it up. Um, Mizuguchi. We saw Mizuguchi. God damn it. Ozu is Tokyo Story. Anyways, we didn't okay. see Ozu. It's more. We I think it's more. How should I say this? It's more representative of of, of more traditional Japanese style of okay. culture, where this one it kind of feels very Western to me. I don't know if you guys got that feel. Did you think that it was felt very like it? It felt like a like almost like the Canterbury Tales. Almost. Okay, you know, it was very Chaucer esque. Um, 
And so in that way, yeah, it's kind of Western because it's just a, a really clear cut allegory. But like, I don't know what, I don't, I, I don't know that, that, uh, you know, an Eastern culture doesn't have that kind of allegory. You know what I mean? I'm not saying this well. No, I know what you're saying. It might be just universal. Yeah. 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 It seems like a universal kind of story. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's why it caught on. It won, I think, a bunch of awards, obviously, in Venice. I think you said the Golden Lion. Yeah. It won an honorary Oscar. It didn't, it won, this was before they had the foreign language award, you know, our True. best foreign film. So True. they just won an honorary. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, as we kind of stumbled upon that sort of like um, female oppression is a sort of universal kind of thing i mean it's it, it nothing in this story was very specifically japanese or japanese culture that you had to really understand in order to understand what was going on in the movie you know it's not like you had to know the thousands of years of history to know what's going on here yeah. this is these are very human things on a very visceral universal human level that yeah. is easy to access for anyone not just you know film nerds I agree. I think it's true. I think there's a lot of stuff that's universal. The, the, I think the main thing is not necessarily like, okay, we can get these specific cultural misogynistic moments. It's more like we understand that there's multiple narratives and that these multiple narratives are unreliable. That's a fascinating thing that we've probably never seen before. Just seeing the story broken up like that is a very cool thing. Even just watching it now, I, it felt very modern. Honestly, it didn't feel too old to me because we got... I don't know. We got multiple views of the story. It wasn't like it was too drawn out or boring because I got, I don't know, I got used to, it was almost like Groundhog Day. Obviously that's a very stupid comparison, but mm. you get used to seeing the same thing. You kind of, you get the story. It wasn't like an older movie to me where I kind of get bored or lost along the way. Uh, so to, to me, that was part of the problem. That was a, a part of why I was not very useful in the recreation of this movie is uh -huh. I was drifting a lot and oh, really? like all of this kind of blends together now in, you know, we, we watch this movie and then it's, you know, 30 minutes before we start podcasting. Mm -hmm. And in that 30 minutes, it, all of that stuff just kind of starts to run together. And to, to me, like I was definitely zoning out at times and just like, you know, cause we're seeing that same thing kind of over and over again. I think once we got to the fortune tellers version of it, I kind of lost most of what she was saying just because it was, you know, I was already out of the movie at that point. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until we come back and we start to see the, um, the, the thief, uh, fighting differently again that my attention was kind of brought back in and I started to really, you know, kind of vibe on what they were going for. But, and you know, it's one of those things that like, yeah, I, I, the, the sort of concept or the, um, the, the big underlying sort of thematic idea of the movie is greater than the actual enjoyment of watching this thing. I think it's somewhat fair to say. I, I do, but I, I, I just love that the ideas and the themes so much that they kind of overwhelm me. Yeah. So that it yeah. overwhelms any kind of faults in this, in that way. But let's, let's kind of save that yeah. till the end when we get our reviews. Uh, let's, let's kind of break up this tension, if you will, gentlemen, and let's play a game. Yeah. Sean, you ready for a game, baby? Let's do it. Let's do it, Shan. Faster? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Really? Oh, my God. I'm just, I'm not good at So, to our, our listeners out there in this moment of transition, uh, you may have heard a rustling throughout the podcast. I've got a bag of Cheetos in front of me, and I'm a real piece of shit. 
so <laughs> hopefully been, they won't hear it. I've been slowly trying to move. Gentlemen, are you ready to play the most wondrously fantabulous game ever to be thrust forth from the vows of the internet? The only game on the web where I look up the numbers and give you the name and the log line, and then it's up to you to guess the gross. And today uh, on Guess the Gross, we are going to be going over mm, Roshiman Effect movies. Oh, awesome. Oh, <laughs> that seems yeah. like the obvious choice. <laughs> Fuck, that's yeah. actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah no, I... Because you were going to go with Rain Wilson movies? I, I toyed with Rain movies and... You know. you know what? We didn't talk about the rain. Okay, we'll get to that yeah. later. The rain, yeah. Interesting. I, I will certainly yeah, talk about, about the rain Thematic. that falls mainly on the plane. In Spain. No. What's up for Sean? So, gentlemen, today... We We're, are doing movies that are the Roshiman effect. Roshiman. Uh, Roshiman. 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 Rosh Hashanah. Mm. First up, five criminals, one lineup, no <laughs> coincidence. In 1995, directed by Brian Singer, we have the usual suspects. Brian Singer, you vile fiend. <laughs> it's okay because you have two people. Uh, alleged, alleged. No. I have a Brian Singer story that I'm not going to tell <laughs> on this podcast. Good. Everyone in Hollywood has a Brian Singer to come to my house and I'll tell you. Don't come to Tim's house. Come to my house. And I, Brian if you Singer come, will be there. I swear to God, if you come to my house and you knock on my door and you're like, hey, is Tim there? Can I hear that Brian Singer story? Swear to God, I'll tell you. Well, last week we established that it only cost about $50 to get Tim's entire address. So you can, uh, you know, work on that Patreon yourselves. It's a very real dream, people. This okay, one stars Stephen Baldwin, Benicio Del Toro, Kevin Pollock, Kevin Spacey, Chaz Palmentary. Okay, sure. In 1995, what did the usual suspects make? Inpatient Joey. Yes, I want to get to this. Uh, I'm going to say 50 mil. $50 million, says Joey Antimer. This is a big one, man. And also 95? 95. 95. Market was strong. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go 85. $85 million, says Timmer. And you are both pretty high. This one came in at $23 million. Well, Joey in my takes ass. All right, gentlemen. Done and up. done. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. In 2014, David Fincher directed Gone Girl. Oh, that's a terrible tagline. I didn't know this was a Rashomon effect movie. Yeah, honestly, is it? I, I haven't actually it seen is. it. I didn't it's, see it. It's is on it? all the lists of Rashomon movies. Is it? I don't know. No, there might be I mean, unreliable it's about, narrator. It's about, yeah, 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 yeah. You got an unreliable narrative. It kind of keeps you guessing. I think it's loose. But uh, this movie made, am I going first or is Joe going and first? This one was Ben Affleck, Neil Diamond, Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Diamond Harris. <laughs> Neil Diamond Harris. Uh, He's amazing. He's yeah. got the best Broadway Rosamund voice. Rosamund Pike. <laughs> he, he can Unstoppable. dance. Ooh, Tyler Perry's in this one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in 2014, what did Gone Girl make, Timmer? Uh, 217 million. 217 million dollars, Joey. 78. 78 million dollars. <laughs> you guys are gonna make me do some motherfucking math here. Uh, yeah, um, made 150. I think. Yeah, I think Timmer takes that one. It came in at 167 Jesus, million dollars. Was that big a deal? Oh, it was a big one. It was a big one. People were freaking out about this. My sister wouldn't shut up about it. Gentlemen, <laughs> what's her name and address? Quickly, let's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, a medal for honor. Tim Dox is everybody. 
a medal funny. for it's, honor, it's not funny. It's a terrible. search for justice, a battle for truth. In 1996, directed by Edwards Wick, we Men have Courage honor. Under Fire. Courage Under Fire. Courage Under Ooh. Fire. Who's in this one? This one stars Mr. Denzel Washington, okay. Meg Ryan, Lou Diamond Phillips, Matt Damon. I'm in. Lou Diamond Phillips. Wow. We're in. Uh, yeah. And yeah. who directed? I, I'm going to watch this when you guys leave. Uh, this one is Edwards Wick, Courage Under Fire. Mm. What year? Fire. Fire. Uh, fire. 1996. I'm going to say $62. million. $62 million. And Timmer? $41. $41 million. Again, with the Matthew motherfuckers, this one Ooh, came wow. in at $49 million. Oh, oh, that's no, 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 no. That's easy, Joey. Bonier. How much math is it? That's not math, dude. That's math. That's like, you know. No. 41, 59, 62. No, that's, that's like math. That's like Lego math. Yeah, I'm not a smart man. <laughs> that's like put block together. I'm not a bright man. <laughs> I don't know what love is I'm either. I'm not a smart man. All the assassins live beyond the law. Only one follows the code. In 1999, directed by Jim Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch. This is a film podcast. Ghost Dog, <laughs> Way of the Samurai. Wow, i never seen Ghost that. Dog. Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. This movie made like 12 bucks. <laughs> is that your answer? Is that your final answer? Go no, it's for not. Ghost Dog. This one I'll stars say... Forrest Whitaker. Um, no other names I 2. recognize. $2.5 million. Two point five dollars says Timmer. I said eight. Eight million dollars. No math required here. Timmer takes it. This one was three point three. Three point three dollars. Wow. wow. So Go. I kind of yeah. I I underestimated it. You're you know? pretty close though. No, because I thought I thought two point five was going to be high. I love <laughs> Jim Jarmusch, mm. but my God, that's I sound like a tool bag saying it. Mm, you yeah. can't that, say I, his name. That can't be right. Not... It can't be Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch? Probably. Whatever. All right. So Jim Jarmusch. JJ. Abrams? To his buddies. So my my fella, JJ. I really loved Only the Lovers Moosh. Left Alive. I really loved Broken Flowers. Um, but uh not not a not a moneymaker. All right. So we're all tied up here. <laughs> two to two. Last one on the board. We have <laughs> Believe Everything Except Your Eyes. In 1998, directed by Brian De Palma, Mouse we have hunt. Snake Eyes. This is Nicolas Cage, Gary Sinise, John Hurd. Uh, Fucking never even heard of this. Yeah, it's like a boxing done. match, but there's like a murder during the boxing match. Exactly. And then, oh. then, then Nicolas Cage saw it. He's got snake eyes, and yep. he's Nicolas Cage, so it's yep. awesome. He's got snake eyes? Yep. Yeah. He's got like like the like, eyes of a snake. Yes, that's the plot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know he's in a movie soon playing Nicolas Cage. What? Yeah, that I read. Awesome. I did not read the article. I only read the headline. That it sounds was, perfect. It was called Kick Ass. Yeah, it's called every movie. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So in 1998, what did Snake Eyes make? Timmer. <sighs> Joey. 32. <laughs> 48. 32 says Joey and 48 million dollars says Timmer. Timmer takes this one away. Snake Eyes brought in 55 million dollars. Nick Cage was batting a thousand at that point. That guy could, that could. 55 mil is not very good for him. I don't no, know. that's not very not good. Very good. Like you could point a camera up and he could take a shit on a plate of glass and like in I've 1998 it's going to make 
money. Really? It's called Face Off. This is me. He, yes, they're gross. There's a poop scene? It's a deleted scene. Oh my God. There's a poop scene? Deleted, but yes. Are you fucking kidding me? In Face Off? No. Do you... What? He's just being a dick. Yeah. Speaking of being a dick, they're all going to leave because it's time for my Oops. sound segment. It's only oh, time. yeah. I do have to pee. Yeah, Jesus Get Christ. the fuck out of here. Wow, this is a very sound-heavy movie. So th- I'm sorry, this might take a little while, guys, to oh so strap God. in. It's a fucking, it's a big deal, okay? Even Kurosawa admitted that this movie is very sound-heavy. Um, it's a, it's got a lot there. I mean, let's let's save the music for a second. Let's quickly just talk about some of the the ADR, the voices, the dialogue. What did you think, Sean? Did the ADR, the, the, you know, throw you off? Some the of ADR? these, yeah. The there was some production sound, but there was a lot of. The fuck lips am I looking at, man? <laughs> the, I, I, it's a foreign movie. I, I have no idea what ADR is like. Oh, because fo- you're not because re- you're yeah, not. I'm looking. not looking at lips at all, man. <laughs> I'm fucking reading the words on the bottom of the screen. Okay. I would never pick up on ADR in a foreign language film. Fair enough. Uh, it was a little. It was a little off. I probably. I wouldn't know. It wasn't a big deal, though. I thought actually just the quality of the sound was pretty good. Yeah, um, the, I thought the quality of the recordings were, were really decent. Yeah. Like the mix was good, but you know, I have no idea what they're saying, so I don't really pay that much attention. I just think, considering 1950s technology, I'm thinking about the preamps of the 1950s and, and just the technology there wasn't really I mean, great. Singing in the Rain sounded good. <laughs> like, you know, we had, it was a little later, we but had yeah. good mo- sounding movies around this time. Like, they're, they're not reinventing the wheel over there. Fair enough. Uh, okay. What do you think about the voice of the medium? That was interesting. That was a cool effect, right? That was a little weird. Um, it seems like in a time of limited effects, you know, that was a decent choice. Um, I don't think that choice would be made again today. But, um, you know, again, given the limitations, sure, that's at least enough to be different and a little bit, you know, uh, yeah, just different than what it was I think it was odd. It sounded like a phasing thing. Yeah, yeah. Where they were kind of doing a purposeful phasing where, you know, you get a little, well, basically, you know, you kind of take the copy of the sound and you layer it over each other and you have this big hole in, in the middle where you cancel out frequencies. Phasing. Anywho, the point is that it gave you this kind of weird hollow effect that the ghost kind of sounded creepy. I liked it. I thought it was something we don't normally hear now because it's almost like a mistake. Yeah. It was nowadays. really cool. It yeah. was a cool effect and I really dug it. And I thought it was, it was a clever use of resources. And that's why I love old sound design because, you know, what you're for it's almost like i think everyone knows a stupid thing you know limitations are the yep. you know, the catalyst of inv- of invention yes and and it's so true here i think that also the music itself was almost in limitation i think we're going to get a lot into this but it's very simplistic in some ways and i wanted to read you a quote um by Kurosawa about the sound uh, of this film. He says, cinematic sound is never merely accompaniment, never merely what the sound machine caught while you you took the scene. Real sound does not merely add to the images, it multiplies it. He went also to say, I like silent pictures and always have. I wanted to restore some of this beauty. I thought of it, I remember it in this way, one of the techniques of modern art is simplification and that I must therefore simplify this film. Hmm. I thought that was really interesting because I thought that a lot with the music of this film. Um, and I and I think the music itself is really special. It's, it was. Um, it's done by Fumio Hayasaka. And we actually know this guy because he did Sancho the Bailiff. He worked with huh. uh, Mizuguchi as well as some, you know, uh, Kurosawa's most famous film, later yeah. Seven Samurai. And, um, some of the I have a note written down that says Andy Griffith goes to India. The fuck? Or not India, but Japan, I guess. 
I don't know what he's trying to say there. Never mind. No idea. Either way, I think that the music is really something special. Um, it also it has shades of vertigo in it. Mm. I think there's a lot of these circular kind of arpeggios and repetitive phrases that almost drive you crazy, especially during the woman's retelling of the story. <laughs> I know that's... And, nah, sorry. I know it's misogynistic and that's why Sean's laughing, but it's true. They were trying to say that the woman is crazier than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what he really did was he sampled this song called Bolero by a... Um, shoot, Marcel... I'll have to look it up in a second. It's by a Marcel something. He's a French composer. And what's really amazing about this song is that it was very repetitious. And it would have this beat, you know, this bump, 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 bump. It was very, uh, you know, almost uh, Spanish in a way. And that's why mm-hmm. it was a bolero. So there's a repetitive beat over and over again. And then it would slowly crescendo into this loud, you know, madness. Maurice mm-hmm. Ravel. Thank you, Maurice Ravel. And, um, and it, this was his masterpiece. And what's so interesting about this piece is that he was designed, he did it when he was kind of older and going crazy. And he loved the sound of this repetition. And um, and when he played it in some concerts, people, one woman, this old woman shouted out, that's garbage. <laughs> he was repeating the same thing over and over again. And he shouted out to her, you got it. You're the only one who understands this music. <laughs> and, he's, and that's what's so fascinating. He was almost trolling the audience showing, this is what insanity is. This is what going crazy is. This is, overly repetitious music designed to make you insane. And I thought that was fascinating how this composer- Fucking Andy Kaufman. Used it in a lot of, not just the scene with the woman, but a lot of other scenes, this bolero, this this sample, this, you know, he's almost quoting, if you will. And and it really gave you this feeling of madness, this consistent beat, you know, like almost beating your head against the wall, this consistent- bolero snare drum of of consistent rhythm. I just thought that was really fascinating um, because it, it definitely was not what you would normally be thinking about in a movie at this point. Like outside of all of that, none of, you know, I wasn't thinking about any of that, but I did notice the like sort of heartbeat pace that was just kind of consistent through so much of this. Like to me, that was kind of one of the things that did keep me engrossed in at least the scenes that I was kind of engaged in. You know, it's, just, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, just being kind of, the, it seemed like that pacing was matching almost the the rhythms of the, the heartbeat of the character to me. I agree. And I think that, and I'm just getting this comparison now that I'm thinking about is Dunkirk. Um, yeah, yeah. Hans Zimmer uses the, the clock all the time, you know, just constantly ticking to keep that yeah. tension going. And it really is funny because they're both Rashomon, effect. Mm. Dunkirk is absolutely a restaurant with many different perspectives, you know? So I think that um, it's interesting how that, you know, sometimes I guess the the, the music itself keeps the momentum going from time, from story to story or, and and using that momentum can kind of, you can slow it down or you can speed it up depending upon the tweaking of the story. So, you know, it's almost like a light motif where you still have the same theme, but if you tweak the theme, you can kind of show what's going on in the story. For instance, if you have the same theme and then you have the woman story, well, maybe we play that same theme, but we kind of make it more circular and we make it more gradually crescendo and then we make it more repetitious. So it makes that same story feel more insane. Crazy Tom Banana Pants. And it's subconscious, but it's, um, you know, it, it's, a not, it's not just accompaniment is what he was saying. It's almost counterpoint. So I, I like the way that the music here is much, much more different than we've seen, especially in this era, 1950. Now we get some of that more later with Bernard, Bernard Herrmann and, and Psycho, but it, it's a pretty amazing, I think, thing here, how influential this is. And I can see a lot of people going back to this and pulling from it. 
just the way the kind of the the insanity of the music works with the the scenes. Okay, sorry, I'm talking a little bit too much there. Um, I thought something that was really amazing actually was the way they had the lack of music. Did you guys notice at the end? I was, did. There was yes. no music at the, the final. Just about none. Yeah, yeah, none at all. The only thing we heard it was actually very no foley. The only thing we hear was some foley footsteps and fucking heavy breathing. Oh yes. my god, this movie could be called Heavy Breathing <laughs> because all of it is just ASMR, close miking, heavy breathing. Yeah. And I don't know. Did that? Did you like that, Tim? I, you obviously noticed it. Did you? Did you enjoy that for the finale? The fight enjoy. Scene? Um, <laughs> I don't know. What did the, you think about? I. I, I we'll talk about enjoy later. Uh, but, um, was that an effective way? It was effective. It was effective because it, it put me where I was supposed to be, you know? Yeah. I was focusing on the desperation of these people and how horrible this situation is, you know? Sure. Uh, and so in that way, it was effective. It wasn't, it's interesting. You're right. It's so true. And the try, silence also, yes. It's trying to be immersive, right? With the idea that you're next to the characters, you're hearing their breath. Yes. But there's not a lot of background sound. There's almost no wind there. There's no, you know, birds. Actually, not till the end. There is birds chirping. They save that till the end. Yeah. But the, um, I don't know, it just felt very dreamlike. It felt very fake and surreal. Yeah. And that was on purpose, I suppose. But then you well, also so many fight scenes from this era that we've seen have like such a weird lack of foley. Yeah. Yes. You know, in many, many ways, no it's different. a technological thing. This movie's thing. no different. You know, there's there's times where they draw their swords and it makes noise, and there's times when they draw their swords and it doesn't. Yeah, it's inconsistent. You're absolutely right. Um, and I think maybe I'm giving that a lot of credit because of Kurosawa was saying how much he wanted to simplify this and and use silence. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's an effective way. Um, because it's it it focuses you yeah. with perspective. You know, it yeah. forces the car- the the audience to to think about. Okay, we hear their footsteps. Look at their feet. You know, we hear their breath. Think about. Look at their face. You know, even that kind of stuff. Well, we, simplistic. we hear their breath. Think and then that doesn't. You know, it makes us think about their their state of mind, their desperation. You know, it places us in their emotional uh, in, in you know where they're at. Agreed. And I think it, it is simplification. It, it's almost like tunnel vision. It's like, well, I'm not going to give you five sounds right now. Yeah. It's not going to be Because that's real... not what we're focusing on. Right. You know, he's not making a documentary. He's telling us a story. Yeah. And a very unreliable story. Fuck off, Sean. An unreliable story. I'm trying to build on it. An unreliable story. So those sounds help us focus on the things that maybe weren't there or make it seem whatever. Unrealistic. Sean's bored. So I'm going to yeah. move on. Oh, no. I was just adding sound effects to the con. Yeah. Sean didn't give me the board this week. Let's talk about the rain. Um, yeah. Let's talk about it. The sound of the rain was overwhelming in the beginning, right? We Bacon, get- right? Maybe. Sure, they could have used the rain stick, you know, an actual stick with the, you know, the with the beads, the beads and the, you know, yeah. the beans. And the, that's fine too. Uh, I'll take it all. But I don't know. What did you guys think? It was obviously symbolic, but um, I don't know. Did it, did it add to the beginning and end? What only hearing the rain in the beginning and the end kind of thing? It was. I thought it was interesting. I thought the premise of the story was kind of just interesting. You know that these three characters are in this place by by way of circumstance. You know, and so the rain played that part for me. I didn't, I didn't pull any that place. Em- do you mean? Y- yeah, exactly. I didn't. I like. I got that there was probably supposed to be an emotional component to that. You know, in regards to the story, 
But I didn't feel it, I wouldn't say. I would say it's mourning, you know, it's grieving. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's getting over the loss. That's yes. what Rashomon is to me. Um, but I think the rain helped that. Obviously, it's very, you know, hackneyed. You know, yeah. rain is crying. It's it's God crying. It's sadness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I think that it, it, it does help you kind of come back to earth. This is very cheesy, but at the end of Inside Out, you guys know the Pixar movie? No. You didn't yeah, see Inside Out? Certainly. Well, you know, at the end, you know, she cries to almost um, grow, you know, and it's not, it's not, it's oh, almost like nice. she's been trying to avoid crying this whole time and avoid sadness, but in truth, sadness helps. It's works. part of, It's yeah. part of it. It's part of the other emotions. So I thought that was really nice how the beginning and the end kind of were, you know, dealing with grief, you know, the sadness of it and then kind of getting over it when, yeah. the, when the, the brain stopped at the end, which it did. Mm -hmm. Finally, when the baby stopped crying. Yeah. Uh, one more thing I want to say but is the baby crying. Uh, okay, so one, it was annoying to be just on an objective level. It was a lot of repetitious sound design of baby crying, which really bugged me over the yeah. climactic conversations at the end. Same but bit of it tape does a her. lot though, you know, just the Pavlovian response we get when we listen to a baby cry. There's nothing worse, man. Yeah, I mean, you instantly have to stop them. You know, you want to turn it off. You want yeah. to. It's an, it's an instinctive yeah. thing. That's why it you sounds want, like you got to comfort them. Yeah. It, it's uncomfortable for you. It's high pitched, um, and it was repetitious in this way. So it was extra annoying. I think. Yeah. So I think the, the, you know when it stops, it's very clear. So the absence of it was very. You know, okay, we're seeing uh, a light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They used it a couple times. They used it um, when the commoner left and also at the end when the priest really did kind of feel, okay, there's more faith. He has restored his faith in humanity. Yes. So um, it was obvious to me, you know, when the baby was crying, the baby was not. But I think it, it's just the subconscious thing, even if yeah. you're not focused on it, that you're feeling it. Um, and I really like that because, you know, anytime you can kind of add an extra layer Mm -hmm. Especially for us who have to read the stuff, you know, it it gives a I don't know gives us an extra layer to the story to me. Mm -hmm. You agree? Yeah, yeah, sure. All right. um, one more thing I want to say about the effects: the, the lightning, the lightning sound effect. Sean, did you notice that one? There's only a couple lightning sound effects. Um, nothing that really stood out to me. Um, I yeah, I mean, I remember there being some storm going on, but was it noteworthy at all? Well, it was noteworthy because it was unique. It, was, so? it wasn't like the typical at the time would be like cymbals crashing or like it was very bassy, but there wasn't a thunderclap. It was almost like in the distance. Yeah. And I mean, there was a, there was a, uh, a wait too, because there was a flash and then there was a, a wait before uh, yeah. the thunder. Yeah, that's true. I did notice that because I was, you know, at first I was just like, oh, that's bad. Wow, and then that's... I started thinking, it's like, oh, I wonder how far away the storm is. Well, yeah, being a Midwesterner, that's how you know when to run for cover. Yarp. I didn't think about this, but that also might be an atomic reference as well. Seeing the flash before the explosion. Well, I mean, that's just all sight and sound at a distance. I know, but there's a specific reference there. Well, no, I mean, yeah, you can find meaning anywhere if you're looking exactly, hard enough. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Like yeah, choice and bullshit. Fair enough. Uh, I just think, to be honest, what I wrote down was that I love how different cultures, different film styles use different sounds for basic effects. I was comparing this to dogs barking. Um, I don't know, in different languages, we do different sounds for dogs barking. Oh, I, the onomatopoeia stuff? Yeah, yeah, like in Israel, for instance, they say hav hav. Mm. I thought that was great. Hav hav. That's not a dog, right? You know, that's not Hebrew. Is, you know, I just, I- Hav, 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 hav. Mm. You know. I well, mean, well, our, I think arf, 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 or bark, bark. Bark is a little- 
further away than Arfarf. I think Arfarf is closer to the actual sound. I just think it's interesting. I'm sure that Russia has one, Italy has one. You know, they all have different ones. I just think it's fascinating. So I like. I think that was interesting to point out that lightning, sorry, lightning, thunder has a different sound in this film than I'm used to. So that was kind of cool. Because you're used to fucking cartoons. Maybe. Looney Tunes. Goddamn symbols for lightning. Yeah. Um, one more thing I want to say is the music really had a lot of complex stuff going on. Um, crescendo, a lot of it, rhythm to every shot, different instrumentation, a lot of light motif. You know, when we see the woman, we see the, we see it, we feel a harp. When when the bandit wakes up and he sees her, we we hear an arpeggio and a harp. You know, symbolizing this beauty of heaven that he finally sees. There's a lot there, and I think that this. You know, maybe we kind of look back and you know, it's a little simplistic leitmotif and maybe it's a little bit overly simplistic now because it's not used anymore, except in Star Wars movies. <laughs> but I think that it really works in this film. It's not hitting over you over the head. Oh, did you notice that, Sean? Does that actually, does that bother you more leitmotif nowadays? You know, we see a character, we hear his theme. Does it bother you? Is it to take I you out of the film? I fucking love Peter and the Wolf, man. But like, you seem to hate the fourth wall stuff. You always hate it when you're thrown out of the film. Don't you think that, oh, I hear Peter's theme, it's... Honestly, I'm not that conscious of that shit. To me, that's all like subconscious shit. So I'm not, I don't recognize, especially on a first viewing um, motifs or things like that. And to me, that's part of that subconsciousness of film. Like, I don't expect audiences to be analyzing what lens I'm using, but I choose a lens based on the effect and the feeling that it's supposed to get. Understood. And so to me, that's kind of, especially on a first viewing, that's kind of the enjoyment is is not really, you know, focusing too much on that and just kind of focusing on the uh, sort of absorption of the meal of this film. I think it's an interesting point, And I think it's why perhaps we should be watching these films twice. Because on the first viewing, I overanalyze, as you can always tell, <laughs> especially in this current segment where I'm literally talking about sound for what's going on to be about 15 minutes. So, anywho. No, it's been good. I think it's been good because there's a lot here. <laughs> yeah. You've been in the bathroom for half of it. <laughs> <laughs> I got hit with the hot snakes out of nowhere. Oh, uh, why'd you? Thanks. I just wanted to say that on microphone. Mm. Um, the jungle, speaking of snakes, walking through, the, the, we had those shots where we were kind of walking through with the woodsman mm -hmm. into the into the darkness, into the jungle. Yes. And we had specific bolero there. That was a theme they kept coming back to as you were walking into the jungle. And I really love this because I compared it to Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now. You know, uh. walking into the jungle, getting more crazy, going in towards more insanity. You know, as we get into that, that place where the crime happened, it get things get muddy, things get nuts. And as you walked into it, we had that bolero crescendo and it worked perfectly for that walk in, I thought was really cool. Mm. Those Thank shots, you. by the way, remind me a lot of the mm. speeder bike chase and Return of the Jedi. It was, oh, so it, it was a lot of interesting choices. That was a very experimental segment for sure. Let's get to that actually, because I think we're yeah. pretty much done with the sound. Because did it did it look, Sean? Did it look? Did it look? It looked left. It looked right. It looked up. It looked down. But how did it look? Hmm. Uh, mostly good. So I will take umbrage with your um, deep reading of all of the rain and say that. Uh, First off, them just the most beautiful shots in the movie is all the rain stuff. The rain stuff just to me looked great. Um, other than like 
giving a good, clear separation and a reason for there to be this sort of like huddling or a reason for these people to be in this place. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily read the rain. As, well, they're taking shelter from the rain. Right, right. But I mean, to me that I, I can very easily read that as just a, uh, a writing device to make sure that, you know, because otherwise, if it wasn't for the rain, all these people would have just been on their merry way yeah. after the trial. So the rain is the thing that keep that allows this story to actually be told because it's what forces these people to be in the same environment for an extended period of time. But there are yeah. other ways to make characters have to sit Sure, sure. No, but what, together, what I'm right? getting at, though, is that rain doesn't always have to necessarily be depressing. Rain can also be cleansing, That's which right. I think I, is kind I of. Was a, trying to, I thought I was saying. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Jesus Christ! Well, you're man. kind of you're contradicting me when you're incorrect. I was saying that it was grieving and mourning. I was right. saying it, it was it wasn't just sadness. It was yeah. getting over the sadness. God crying, like Joey said. Right, and I, I I understand what you're saying there, but to me, I didn't see that in any other aspect that would make me think that that is what this was driving at. I never got that this movie was about grieving about anything. I didn't feel that the woman cared that her husband gave, died. I didn't feel that that was any sort of well, big impact on her. Can I jump in? Yeah. I don't think that it was about grieving necessarily of those characters. I think it was about the overall, the narrator's grieving about the sadness of the world, about how everyone is selfish and that everyone is looking out for themselves and no one is an objective uh uh, participant. That's a sad thing. And I think oh, at the end, the priest is saying that overall, since everyone is selfish, there's, well, again, he, there's a little hope in this world because even though everyone is selfish, there's still this guy here who's willing to take this baby even after all that, in the face of all the sadness. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with you. I just kind of always take umbrage with the overanalyzing of, um, you know, putting meaning on after the fact sort of thing. Well, where do, we can, do you take umbrage with any analysis of in metaphor and symbolism or um, just specific ones? I mean, there is a, I, I guess a line that is indefinable that does get crossed with me. So there is a, a, you know, um, a certain amount of a analysis and reading into what could be the metaphors is is certainly healthy, I, but I do think there is a point where it becomes like, you know, losing the forest for the trees. I like, agree. You know, are, does it was was any of this? I guess it always goes to me. It always goes back to was any of this in the mind of the artist? Right. And if not then it's not part of the communication and it's something that you're bringing to this movie. First of all, one, I don't care uh, if I'm only bringing it, by the way. That's fine to me. That's kind of part of the art. But two, I think in this specific situation, I think that, I think I think the reason why you're seeming your way and I see my way is because of modern filmmaking. Is is when you do see rain nowadays, you're right. It's probably is just because of what makes it look good. But I think that specifically this instance of it was for a specific purpose. That's all I'm trying to say. Maybe, and you can disagree. You can think I'm overanalyzing. That's fine. But I just think that maybe that's because you're used to seeing it and you're correct. It's used for just an aesthetic purpose and not a symbolic purpose. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea what the intent of anything was, but um, I, you know, there's, 
this movie has like weird levels where it's deep and shallow at the same time. And like, I'm not sure which aspects go where and what to attribute what to. But getting back to the visuals, as I was saying, the rain stuff to me was definitely the most visually appealing part of this, mainly just because I gravitate more towards dark imagery and that raining sort of sequencing was a lot more just contrasty and dark sort of imagery in general. But I felt that that was like the most cinematic portion of the movie. When we were following the actual tellings of things, um, everything was just kind of, it almost felt like, you know, by the numbers sort of um, not too much going on. There were some couple of scenes like first off at the beginning when the, um, uh, the, who is the hoodlum or the robber is the telling the bandit is telling his story. We've got some really cool shots of like the camera moving and running with him through the jungle and everything. Yeah. But a lot of that seems to fall to the wayside after about the first 20 minutes or so. And it becomes very, very sort of, um, basic, blocking and shooting for most but, of what goes on. The reason why I think that's cool is because we're now we're getting different retellings. So it's almost like the the bandit is an action hero in his own movie. Right, right. And that to me, that came through in everything except the camera. So there was a difference in, there, there, there was a difference in the acting. There was a difference in what was going on in each of those scenes, but the camera didn't do anything different to help sell that idea of new perspective from this. So well, you said there was the, well, at least a few shots, right? There was that shot that kind of followed him into the jungle. Right, right. And like I said, that, all of those, it seems like all of those really uh, noteworthy shots were within about the first 20 minutes. But okay. once we actually get into the, you know, each person going through their telling, once they're telling the story and we're seeing the, the woman on the horse with the veil and walking through the jungle and whatnot, and the guy gets tied up, all of that, every time we see that, it's all pretty samey. I have a question time. actually, and this is, you know, I'm sure it can be on many ways, but if you were to make this movie today, mm -hmm. what would you do visually to kind of differentiate those Stories. I mean, like, you know, especially the ending one, when we're telling it from the perspective, I mean, it's just more, um, the camera can be from the perspective of each person telling it I a see. little bit more. I'm so just not like a lighting thing you might do. Or? I, they would start, also probably do the color correction. Yeah. Color correction would be different. Lighting might be a little bit different, but mostly it would be like when we're with the telling it from the story of the woodcutter, we're seeing it from behind trees and from, you know, looking through and seeing it from a distance from where that guy's perspective would necessarily be. You know, when he's telling his story, we're just in with normal close-ups and and everything just as the same as we are with every other telling of the story. So it just, to me, there, you know, the, I, I didn't, it, and honestly, because I didn't know much about this movie going in, it took me way too long to catch on to what this movie was doing. You know, if it was visually representative, I think, I think that would have like keyed me in quite a bit quicker to the whole concept. Uh, and I think yeah. that would have been more enjoyable because I would have seen that evolution much quicker rather than like, it wasn't really until like the last telling of the story that I really started to see big differences in what was going on there. Fair. I gotcha. Fair. Um, what did you think? So let's get back to some of the faces. We had a lot of like, you know, extreme close-ups, mm -hmm. a lot of detail in the close-ups and the faces. I don't know. How did you feel about that, Tim? Did you like that style? I I always I always found myself enjoying those shots because they were they were always just, you know, they were they were the sharpest of the shots that mm -hmm. we were presented with, you know. They were the best 
composed frames, especially in those like kind of retelling moments, all those flashback moments, you know, the wides all kind of felt staged, you know, but those close-ups kind of felt a lot more personal, you know? So like when we were cutting in on, on her looking up at the bandit when she's, you know, brimming with sweat and we can literally see the sun glistening off the sweat on her upper lip, you know, as she's looking at this guy in desperation, like those shots were beautiful. I was impressed with a lot of almost anachronistically. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's basically the opposite of everything I've been saying. So, yeah, I, I mean, you're certainly entitled to your opinion. And we already mentioned the fact that I thought the sweat looked fake. And I. Well, I, we I, like different shit. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm just. Um, I'm yeah. Not, clarify, please. Yeah. Talking, oh, but yeah. I mean, and just like, to, as I kind of said already, I think the, the shot, those very. Um, meticulously sculpted wides were much more uh, cinematic and engaging than the close-ups, especially be based. The close-up was so dependent upon the performer that we were doing the close-up of, because mm-hmm. when we were doing the close-ups on the woman, sometimes it was good. And sometimes it was just kind of, uh, I mean, her, her performance was a little all over the place. When yeah. we started to do the close-ups on the bandit, that was really good. And that worked because he was working as, yeah. as an actor and as a character. And so I think that, you know, the power of those shots was so dependent on the power of the actor that we ran with. Oh yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I enjoy the style and like just the, the beauty of that frame. Mm. I didn't think it fit in the story. Yeah. yeah. You know, I thought there was a lot of great blocking. A lot of times, you know, a couple of characters yes. were in between yeah. each other. I kind yep. of mentioned that earlier. Yeah. A lot, just a great blocking, especially some of those dolly shots where there was choreographed movements from one side to the other mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. There was, what, what was, there, well, there was a, th- not to like go off on, there was a three shot. At one point, yeah, with the old man in the center frame, yeah. and the priest the and the camera. commoner on either side of him, and everybody's in focus. And I was like, "What is this?" Like a, I couldn't figure like because I'm I'm not a cinematographer. I don't really you know this isn't my jam. What? How did they do that? Just how did they get everyone in focus? Or was it just like a super long lens? I'd be the other way. So it'd be a very or wide lens. lens with, or depth of field. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you're talking about the actual amount of area that's in focus, that would be depth of field. Depth of uh, field is controlled by the length of your lens or the wideness of your okay. lens, the aperture that you're using, your frame so size. That lens was just a super. Most like, likely just a wider lens with a more closed down aperture. So, you know, worst okay. case scenario, you bring in a lot of lights and you can close down the aperture mm-hmm. and you can get more depth of field. Mm-hmm. It's just, I think it stands out to you because it's the opposite of what most filmmakers are doing today. Yeah. Today, it's all about the shallow depth of field. Everyone wants to see an ear in focus with the eyes out of focus or whatever the hell these kids are doing today. Yeah. But, you know, back, well, it's sensual. Exactly. But when you're when you're trying to sculpt a, a wide shot, that deeper depth of field can certainly help, especially yeah. when you're, you know, staging with these three characters yeah. in a triangle formation. I was part- yeah, because I was particularly struck by the beauty of that particular frame. Mm-hmm. And it, it it holds up too. Like, you know, that scene kind of works for the length of that shot or that shot works for the length of the scene, I should say, in that, you know, yeah. we can see all three characters. It's not necessary to go to a close-up ever. It's not necessary to change mm-hmm. that angle. We get the emotion and we get everything that we need to from that one shot. And it doesn't really ever not like feel good to look at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really works. loved the camera movement um, I thought, it, and then again, for the technology, I get there was some 
bumps along the way, you know. But I th- I liked the sm- the, how the, you know, there was a lot of smooth dolly moves in the mm-hmm. forest. I was like, there's yeah. some pretty cool stuff. And like, you know, the moves were, like you said, I liked that they didn't go too long. Like yeah. they lasted exactly how long the action lasted. It wasn't like, okay, we're obviously pulling this in. And there was a few movies where we saw they were just kind of doing it to do it. Yeah. You know? I mean, that is one thing I would, I would note about this is that it is one of those things that is held up as a film school movie. But I don't think that the cinematography calls attention to itself. And to me, that's always a big thing that I I look for. There it does it didn't feel like any shots were done just for the sake of the shot. They mm-hmm. were done for the sake of the story that was being told within that shot. I agree. I, I also want to point out the extreme close-ups because you know Tim's just said it before. I love when we get to see the genesis of certain shots and the mm. certain techniques and, and styles. And this seemed to me like spaghetti westerns were taking all of this stuff, you know. And we're gonna watch others. We're probably gonna watch, you know, Fistful of Dollars and Yojimbo. We're gonna see exact copies of this kind of stuff. But it's pretty cool to see where they is you know, three-way standoffs, yeah. you yeah. know, back and forth between these extreme close-ups, back and forth. You can see where it comes from and it works really well, I thought, in this. It wasn't quite as, um, I don't think the, the tension was like a Tarantino movie where everyone's got a gun pointed at each other, no. you know, but it they was- They were swords. They were swords, but it wasn't, also one person was tied up, so that didn't quite have Not all the, all the time. Yeah. Well, in this moment, I thought he, well, maybe he was, I forget. I'm not sure. Well, they were all pointing guilt at one another. Uh-huh. That go. was the true weapon. It's true. And, and it that's was, what makes the, that's, that's, you know, the really relatable part of the story. That's the, you know, the meat and potatoes. Of it. <laughs> I did a little uh, shoulder jig there. Yeah, it was great. Also the wipes. We can talk about those little wipes. Fucking oh, Star boy. Wars, man. Fucking yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, with the goddamn. What do you think about the wipes? I did um, not think about the wipes. I hate wipes. I, I just fucking despise it's them. It's not a good... The only time it's good is in Star Wars, and the only reason that's true is because I was seven when <laughs> I saw it. It, it, it works. Takes you, I don't know. It works in that sort of fantasy, you know, with nothing is supposed to be real. It works in yeah. cartoons. It works in, like, you know, stupid space dr- uh, yeah. fucking adventures. And but, now something you'll really enjoy. Exactly. Right. This wasn't quite a fantasy. Uh, yeah. It, but it, was, it has elements. That's Well, it was only the, the wipes that we're referencing, of course, were only present in the, uh, I'll say, courtroom scenes. Yeah. Um, in, in the presentation of witnesses. And so it's kind of the way, you know, exhibit A, exhibit B, that was the intent. Yeah. Sure. Slide projector you know, or sort of, yeah. yeah. It just Door never fucking works. And if you're listening to yeah. this and you're thinking, nah, no, 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 this one works. No, it doesn't. It doesn't fucking work. Well, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> is a, it is a lesson that every filmmaker needs to learn, though, especially these days with like iMovie and shit. Yeah. Where the first time you open up your editing software, yeah. you go over to the transitions and there's 30 different types of wipes and you put every single one into your video. The, the, and then you realize, oh, these are stupid. The greatest tool that any artist of any medium anywhere will ever have is restraint delete it's always <laughs> about knowing what not to do because yep. anybody can do anything yeah but not everybody can do the right amount of nothing 
Well, yeah, and directing itself. I got, re- I got lost on my own got ass that. right at but, the end. Well, directing itself is is about knowing your story well enough to know what goes in it and what doesn't go in it and to know what choices to make. And that is a huge part of, you know, every choice you're going to make. Yep. And that's storytelling. Yep. We all did right. it, guys. We Buy did a it. mug. Um, <laughs> all right, guys, we're going to play another game. <laughs> hey, let's do that. Let's do it. But we're not going to play that game. So stop the music. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're just playing a play trivia game. So we don't have a, we don't have a button oh. for that. What are you doing, Sean? We don't have a trivia. button. Trivia. Oh, toothy? That's a toothy trivia game. Toothy <laughs> trivia. Toothy trivia game. Toothy. 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 Okay, so basically we've done this year before, so we can't do the Oscars from that year. So mm. we're going to do a trivia game about Japan, okay? Yay. This will be a little, little educational. Some of the questions might be easy. Some of them might be hard. But we have Sean and Tim, two complete ignoramuses. Yep. So who's, yes. we're going to find out who knows more about Japan. Who knows yeah. less? All right, here we go. Gentlemen, you're going to uh, say your name to buzz in. Lob me a softball. You guys both have one syllable names. It All should right. work well. I think, you, although Tim has a much harder consonant, so edge to him. Let's hear we Here we go. <laughs> guys, the current prime minister of Japan is? Tim. Shinzo Abe. That's correct. No? Did you know that one, Sean? <laughs> it's a point for him. <laughs> Okay, looking for reaction. And um, the closest number gets this one, current population. We're not going to have a you know, bump in, but, you know. Tim. Tim. Eight billion. No. <laughs> um, That's his answer. That's his answer. No, 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 no. 800 million people. Wow. Okay. The current population of Japan? Current population of Japan. Um... No idea. 100 million. Sean gets this one. It's 126. Piss. It's 126. I'm really bad at math. So is Sean, though. Well, that's why you guys are tied. Fair. The primary religion of Japan. Shofa. Yes, Sean. Oh, man. Is it? I'm going to give you three seconds. Shin- the Buddhism? Oh. Was, was Shinto. I, yeah, fuck. Shintoism. Uh, I don't know if I can give you the steal. He kind of fuck said off and die. I knew it was Shinto first. He didn't. I also man. knew whatever man. Isn't Shinto a form of Buddhism? No, not it, it, honestly. You're it's close. It's not, it's not entirely. <laughs> it has elements, I believe. Yes. Uh, it's more of a folk religion. But either no. way, we're gonna. I don't know if we're gonna give no, it. To, we're gonna have to know one. No there. points. No Move points were awarded, and may God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> Guys, this is a weird one, but Japan is a connected chain of islands also known as a... Archipelago. It's Sean Fa. Oh, fuck. I'm a piece of shit. I forget how to play the game halfway through it. Archipelago. That's correct. (laughs) God damn it, guys. All right. The tallest peak of Japan is... Sean Fa. I think Sean was first. Sean got me, yeah. Kilimanjaro? <laughs> no. It's, yep. it's in Africa. I think it's Ethiopia. Oh, same difference. Maybe Kenya. Oop. Tim for the seal. <laughs> <laughs> nope. The answer is Mount Fuji. No. Fuck me, dude. That's where the film comes from. I should have known that. 
Apples. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this one isn't quite a Japan question. It is. Japan is actually Cheating. ranked the number one passport in the world to have. Mm. Uh, it's tied with this country. Please Shafa. name this other country. Canada. Incorrect. Damn. United States. No. Wrong. No fucking way. No one wants a U.S. No? passport. No one wants a U.S. passport. You know, not no one, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. A Turkish guy was telling me like yesterday how good a U.S. passport. Oh, it's better was. than a Turkish passport. <laughs> oh God, oh. <laughs> there's a lot wrapped up in this. But the answer is Singapore. Singapore, Singapore, really? Yeah, interesting. Right? Wow, just wow. honored everywhere, huh? Clean, like American you know? Express. No gum. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, this one isn't quite a good one to ask, but maybe just because it's a trivia thing that you guys might both Go know. Yes. What was the city that the first atomic bomb was dropped on? Shanfa. Go ahead. John? Nagasaki? No. Incorrect. That's Damn the second. It. Yeah, it was Hiroshima. Yeah, it was, Hiroshima. It, was, uh, it was Hiroshima, and then 20 minutes later, Nagasaki. It was not 20 not minutes Not 20 later. minutes. It was a couple days it later. Days. It was only 20 minutes. <laughs> not 20 <laughs> They might have decided 20 minutes. <laughs> it was only 20 minutes. No, but this is true. A uh, guy was, there was one dude who survived both. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you, have you not heard about that? Did not. Uh, yeah, a guy was in the like was was in Hiroshima for the bombing, and then went to go work in Nagasaki, and then like, bam! Is he the unluckiest or the luckiest man? I would he's probably well, survive, say... so he's the luckiest. I'm sure there were a lot of people that went for work, but yeah, he's well, the one that did. yeah, he's just the dude. Good yeah. point. Good point. You know, he's he's not the only guy that was looking for work. Can it be both? For bonus points, can you guys name the name of the plane? Little boy. That's the name of the bomb. But very yeah. good. Big Shonfa. Boy. Enola Gay. Correct, sir. Mm. Well done. Little man. Fat man. Yeah. Fat, fat man, man and little fat boy. Fat man and little boy. That's right. It's the uh, same as Aquino. Yeah. You know, the History Channel used to play uh, uh, history. Stuff. Yeah. Let's take a little digression here. Uh-oh. Um, I thought that's what we were doing. Let's talk politics for a second, guys. Oh, shit. Um, sure. Was it a mistake to drop the nuclear bombs? There were, well, the defense for that is that it was a preemptive measure, that it was a war that would have gone on a very long time and would have got and would have cost countless more lives. Now, that having been said, it traumatized the world. Is violence ever right? No, it's not. How about the precedent? Isn't it? The precedent itself of using a nuclear arms against another country with of using I I well you know I'm a bit of a conscientious objector honestly like I'm a conscientious objector that might stab you if you wrong me you know what I mean but uh uh but like it, it it's never right no it's never right to do that uh Sean do you disagree um it's you know it is it is never right but what I will say is that I am glad that once the genie was out of the bottle, we were the ones that did it because someone was going to. Do you, once, yeah, yeah. once we knew that it was possible and we started making those bombs, someone eventually was going to drop a nuke on someone else. And quite honestly, you know, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't dropped on us. Um, that is, you know, kind of the only... Uh, upside I can see there just, you know, uh, from a nationalistic standpoint. Um, it, it is something that until we as a, a, a world went through that and actually saw 
what the ramifications were, that's when we stopped. It wasn't when we dropped the first one because we dropped another one. It was when we actually saw what happens after that stuff yeah. and understood all the civilian casualties versus, you know, more strategic sort of bombings and things like that. Um, I mean, the, yeah, the, the kind of sad fact I heard recently, though, was that other than the atomic bomb, we are currently killing more people, more innocent people in war with drones than, you know, pretty much any other thing. Yeah. So we're, we, the we, percentage. Well, yeah, yeah. We, we haven't learned that lesson well and The number enough, is not as but, large, but yeah. the percentage of, of, of civilian casualties. Yeah. Is, yes, you're right. So it's like eight, when you draw, when you uh, uh, drone someone uh, for every one person you drone, you're, you're killing like, what is it? 80 civilians or something like that. I forget so the numbers. In yeah. other words, like callous disregard for human life. Yeah. Yeah. is the most human thing it, it is and it, it but it is also evolutionarily baked into us because we wouldn't have gotten to where we were if we weren't that fucking you know uh uh hair triggered if we weren't willing to at the uh at the cry of a wolf jump up and start attacking whatever lion was in our territory like we have to be ready for that stuff and then it you know once we started to uh really get into agriculture then your farm becomes that lion that you yeah. need to kill and protect so yeah. like it is it is a natural evolution of things and i do hope that eventually we can uh mature enough as a species to get away from it mm -hmm. but right now it is it it is a necessary evil in and of the fact that it, it exists yeah what do you think joey i think i'm trying to think about the movie um in terms of the Cheater. end when it's between almost the two ideologies of the commoner and the woodcutter, between the idea of everyone is out to get you, so get your own, yeah. the commoner. You know, yeah. I'm going to steal from this baby because fuck it, there's no morality. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's just sad. And then there's the other, the woodcutter, who says, I'm going to steal the same way that the commoner does, but I'm doing it for moral reasons because I have six kids. So it's, it's almost to me the argument I like to make about intention that even the same act, thievery, can be different, you know, stealing a knife versus stealing, you know, the, the amulet from a baby. They're both horrible. They're both steal, stealing, but one has the intention of the other one. And I think that's a common question we ask with American foreign policy is, you know, America bombing someone the same as another country bombing someone if the intention is to save more people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And again, I, we, we can argue point by point, you know, war by war, strike by strike with drones. But the idea is that the intent is to save more people by using force. Um, I don't know. And I think that's a very interesting takeaway to me when I'm, when I'm looking at this. Um, well, I mean, it was certainly valid for the situation we found ourselves in with Japan at that time. Certainly I mean, propagandistically, propagandistically too, because think yeah. about what's going on. We're literally militarily occupying them, trying to reshape Japan now in our image, you know, get, installing a democracy, literally regime change on the harshest of levels. So it-, it you Well, know, I, I was even just getting into deciding to drop the bomb. So when we're dealing with the- the the Japanese um, war machine at that point, they were, the propaganda with them was so strong that their people were not giving up. 
You know, there's the stories of the Japanese soldiers on the island sure. that didn't know the war was over and just continued on, assuming that they were going to need to fight. Like yeah. these, these, even, I mean, to me, just the fact that we dropped the first nuke and they were still fucking coming at us, that we had to drop that second nuke really does to me solidify the fact that we were a little, saving more lives. There's than a little ending. historical mm -hmm. um, uh, misnomers in there that you're kind of glossing over a little bit, mostly because um, Japan wasn't quite, um, they didn't really need to do the second one is the real deal. Um, that actually also was not what Truman really wanted. But they, they didn't surrender until the second one. Um, no, they were probably planning on it anyway. They were just kind of in that interim phase of trying to get the actual planning done. Trying to like save face while Yeah, they, they really were. So it re basically the second one was completely unnecessary. But y you can argue about the first one, but the second one is a little bit dif more difficult to justify, basically. Mm. Um, either way, the point is that I think that I want to try to get this back to the film, if you will, because it is, I know you're saying that it might be slightly different, but I think that it's a part of it. All, the, the, the idea of America's foreign policy and how America took over Japan and how Japan now needs to be remade in the ashes of these two nuclear bombs is a huge thing for, you know, for, the, for their yeah. psyche. And I think this film is part of that. You know, they're, they're dealing well, with the loss of everything. The, it's, it's a film about people processing the aftermath of a tragedy. You know, it can't not be about that. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. I just think it's, it's, um, it's a nice framing, I think, with the way they do Rashomon the gate, with the prologue and the epilogue, mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. the, the, the rain, the morning, and then kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, yeah, that was the story, but let's kind of take an objective look at it. And then let's take another, uh, even bigger look at it and compare ideologies. Yeah. That's a pretty crazy thing to do. And it's a story within another deeper story. And then it has another commentary. I think that's why this works so well for me. And we'll get to this later. Is that there's a lot of levels, I think. And that mm -hmm. there's that core basic superficial level of, wow, this is cool telling a story about a crime and a, and a rape. And it's really, it, no, I didn't mean it like that, but it's, it's action packed and there's different stories stories and narratives, but there's also that idea of now we have these idea competing ideologies. And then how do we get over the fact that these competing ideologies make us cynical? That's mm. really fascinating to me. So I don't know. I think that the, if you look at it in terms of the atomic bombs, I think it gives you that extra layer. Sorry yeah. for maybe going too long there. Again, I keep apologizing for the same no. thing. All right. Uh, we're going to move on. And I think we're actually pretty close to the end here, guys. So let's talk about any, uh, Errata, Errata, miscellaneous things we want to discuss. Sean seems to say he's got none. Tim, do you got anything else to say? No, you know we because co we covered a lot of the a lot of the you know surround you know it, yeah we we did it's good a, yeah it's a post war film you know <laughs> there's only so many things it could be about you know the whole culture is in the middle of a post traumatic stress period and it's and it's coming to terms with what things mean after all this. I also wanted to um, do a little bridge here to our recommendations with Final Fantasy. And I love Japanese role-playing games. And Final Fantasy X is one of my favorite. And the reason why is one, it's a really cool idea is there's this bad guy named Sin, literally named Sin. And he's this ginormous Godzilla-like wow. figure. And he comes and destroys the world every few years. And you have to sacrifice uh, a summoner every few years to basically ward off Sin. Mm. And it's such it's obviously a Godzilla idea, which is we could go into later, but the symbolism there too. But I think it's it's another just kind of idea that 
even today, Final Fantasy X was like, well, I don't know, 2008 maybe. It's yeah. still affecting their storytelling and still a, a huge idea in Japanese culture. Um, whether it's literal or figurative. And I think that's, I don't know, I, I always come back to, and I think it's not just, it is universal in many ways because you're they're not the only country who's dealing with, who dealt with this kind of stuff. And you can take it on a micro level and say, okay, I'm dealing with loss and grief myself. How does this country get over their loss? How do I personally get over this loss? So I just want to point out, I think there's a lot of video games that really kind of have a similar mm-hmm. ideology and, and uh, definitely yeah. play some Final Fantasy. When I was games. looking up the Jidageki, uh, uh and I'm, I'm definitely butchering that. Uh, when I was looking that up a lot, there, there almost seem to be more video game titles that fit into that, uh, that genre than than films. Yeah. So yeah, big big thing with the games, you know. Uh, I mean, some, it certainly seems to be ripe for that style of storytelling. True. Yeah. Like it just big you know, bad. Well, a big bad and like a sort of infinitely explorable world that is, um, uh, you know, just kind of has a. Um, a built-in uh, uh, action zone to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, something we didn't quite discuss, we touched on, is the misogyny of the film. Um, that, yeah. Obviously, it, it's of its era. We always discuss it in terms of, yeah, the context of its history, it's 1950. But I think that um, there's something extra here. I think, well, it's, yeah, th- this this film is, like, aggressively misogynistic. Um, I was going to tackle that in my review a little bit, but like, okay. there's, there's just, there's, there's a lot of victim blaming that does not get examined at all. And that, the, that's the thing that, that this film really kind of missteps with, um, in its terms of like being able to remain timeless is that it doesn't choose to examine its misogyny. So, like, when we're blaming the woman as a victim, you know, or when, when the woman is a victim of rape and we're blaming her for losing her, her chastity or whatever, or being with more than one man, um, we're, we're not thinking about that. Yeah, it's an accepted all. fact. And that's really gross. And I think, like, it, Joey and I, at least, really felt it. <laughs> it's <laughs> fucked up. I, I do I'm feel sorry. like that is a, a new definition of timelessness, though. Um, you know, because that is something that is almost yeah. New. That's actually an interesting thought. That's a good point. Yeah, because yeah, because that's what I said. It dated in that lens, right? Well, I think you're right, Sean. And that timelessness doesn't it used to not mean that. It used to mean the style, the form could translate throughout the eras. Well, I mean, I mean, even just the fact that like this sort of wokeness era is only five, ten years old. But so, I, dis- like, I disagree with that idea though because i think that every generation kind of looks back on their previous generation as not as well oh sure 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 but the the attention that it is being thrust into our media right now it is an expectation that if someone is raped in a movie we're going to examine the misogyny based around that whereas you know for the last i don't know couple million years this is more of what was going on. It's a plot device. Yeah. So like, to me, that's what I was talking about with this being a universal thing, especially back then before the woke ages that we're in now, everyone would have understood this basic misogyny. It was sort of just a universality among almost all cultures Mm -hmm. that, you know, if if your woman was raped by another man, we didn't consider that necessarily to be, you know... uh, 
it was the well it was a bad mark for the woman yeah. and grounds for you know divorce me, at least yeah. and stoning and at other occasions let, let, like, me, let me try to play devil's advocate for a second it's in the bible fuck um i think this film if again i don't i don't agree but i'm going to play devil's advocate i think this film can be viewed as giving the woman uh, the wife agency because in many ways one it gives her one of the three stories which I, again, in 1950, in this feudal era, whatever you want to say, just giving her a perspective itself, even though it's not trusted and it's given. other than yeah, well, I know it's other a than slanted a, perspective. Other than but, her literal testimony, she's kind of a set piece. Okay, yes, I agree. In in many ways, yes, but I think in some of the stories, she has a lot of agency. She chooses which man she wants to be with, even though she is shamed. She, there's a few moments where she, uh, I don't know, she has a feminist type of, of moment where there, she there takes are moments charge where of her she life. takes her power back. Right, there she, are those moments. Yes, yes. Um, I think it was probably more to serve like a like the the. I think that was more for the dramatic effect of of tension or of of not tension but uh uh power dynamic changing in the scene rather than trying to give the woman agency. I don't think I, I didn't see any genuine care for her at all yeah, in I mean, the if, storytelling. If anything, they were trying to show women as two faced and manipulative yeah. more than uh Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to like that was <laughs> Yeah, this is some real Adam and Eve shit. You yes, know? it is. Uh, they even fucking come out and say it. They literally say women can't be trusted. Yeah, there's some. There's some. That's yeah, like in the dialogue. It's some just, really bullheaded lines in the dialogue. Not to mention, I said the music earlier really goes nuts during the woman's story with the with the bolero mm. over and beating you over the head with the beat, telling you she's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so. How else would you know? How else? Indeed? Well, they, they could tell you. <laughs> that would just be exposition. Or they take away her eyebrows. <laughs> that's well i mean most of the time these days if you want to show that a woman's crazy in a movie you have her shave her head so you're not too far off didn't i think britney spears do that yeah, yeah. and she shaved her eyebrows too yeah, uh, yeah. seven no she didn't shave her eyebrows no okay the uh the reasoning that she gave for that actually was that her uh her extensions were pulling on her roots <laughs> and I guess she was just, in, you know, that, that. Tired of that shit? Yeah. Well, she was just that frayed emotionally that she was just like, you know what? Fuck it, man. I'm going to get rid of everything. I get it. You know? I understand. Yeah. Well, because like when a person's in that frame of mind, when they're just that far gone, it's the only thing they can control. You know? And that's the, that in a lot of times in situations like that, that's what people are reaching out for is they're just looking for something that they can control in their lives. That was and her so, water bucket in the sand. And so she'll shave her head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. That's good. Good, Sean. If, uh, if you're looking Callback. for that reference, that's uh, from Woman in the Dunes in our previous podcast. Also available from the podcast studios. Yeah. The sand yeah. movie. The sand movie. The sand movie. Yeah, Anakin's least favorite movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Anything else you guys wanted to say? Any other errata? No. I think one more thing I want to say, because we talked about the wipes, is Shades of Star Wars... You know, a lot, I can see where George There's Lucas so got some Kurosawa much. stuff. The, Star Wars is such a such an Eastern rip, you know. On a lot of a lot of these Japanese films that we've seen, I always take something away of just like, man, George Lucas saw this one, you know, and this is no different. Yeah, um, 
I think Hidden Castle supposedly has more references, but the way that we have those two guys mm. feels very, like I said, R2-D2, C-3PO, these two kind of narrators along the way. They kind of have this play between each other. You know, they're not always friendly with each other, but mm-hmm. they do care for each other about in the end. Um, I thought that was kind of nice. Um, and they're kind of with the audience. So at least they're kind of your rock as you go through these confusing stories. You're like, okay, I'm with, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm still struggling, mm-hmm. but at least we have those two guys in the background that we can kind of depend on as yeah. reliable narrators. Yep. Even though at the end, he's not very reliable. Yeah, no oh, one's reliable in this movie. I know. That's, that's but, the point. By the way, one more thing yeah. about Star Wars. Supposedly R2-D2 is the narrator of all of Star Wars. I've heard that. <laughs> What? I mean, sure. Yep. At the, at the end of all the Star Wars, R2-D2 is retelling there. this story to people. He's the storyteller. He's bleeding oh, it out to the internet. that's such pie-in-the-sky pothead bullshit. It makes a lot of sense because in every movie, R2-D2 always saves the day. So he's, you know, he's just boasting about himself. He is the Mary Shit, Sue. I guess so, yeah. 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 Well, then why do you make C-3PO the god of the Ewoks? Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's not, yeah. a, it's not yeah. it's a maybe it's a half-fake theory. you to that? <laughs> Uh, what'd you think of the movie? Let's, let's do it. Um, I, let's go to Sean first. Let's go to Sean first. Uh, uh, Sean, Sean are you, are you Sean prepared first. or do you have other, uh, no, 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 yeah, no, let's write this I'm film. I'm always ready. Um, I am going to go with, uh, I'm going to go with two stars out of five. Um, you know, I understand like the, I guess, I understand the impact that this had on filmmaking more than I understand why it had the impact that it did. Um, I see all of the connections and I see all of the, the thievery of many other filmmakers. Um, I do like the storytelling structure, but again, that existed before this movie. I'm not sure why this movie gets like the sole credit for kind of inventing this idea of a multi, um, uh, multifaceted storytelling device. Um, I think it's just, you know, the most, the earliest, most noteworthy version in film. But like we said, this exists in all the other art forms before it. So I don't necessarily think it's, um, it, to me, I think it gets a little more credit than it deserves for the inventation of things. Uh, inventing of things? Inventing. Invention. Invention. Of, <laughs> yeah, something like that. That's a pretty um, easy one. <laughs> It's late, I do that actually a lot too. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, me too. Yeah. It's a comment. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it. There are some good things in it. There are some things that I really did like and enjoy. But at the other hand, or on the other hand, I spent a lot of time bored off my ass in this thing. Okay. Two out of five. Two out of five. Uh, would you recommend it to a younger audience? Um, if. Film school nerds that have uh, exhausted a, a previous list of 100 movies I've already given them, maybe. But uh, this is by no means, I, I think, required for normal people. And, uh, you know, it's kind of far down my list of uh, of required for film people. Um, but then again, you know, I'm an unreliable narrator because way higher on my list is Starship Troopers. Yeah. But he yeah, hates metaphor un- and allegory, so who the fuck knows? That's unreliable <laughs> as fuck. You're right. Uh, okay. So I, I actually did like this movie a good amount. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Um, I think this movie is really great for a couple reasons. Uh, one, it's historically very fascinating. Um 
even just looking back at the way we treat women in this film is a good thing to learn from and how horrible it was, it, you know, just looking at that fact. But there's also a lot here. There really is, a, like I said, there's that core story of just is an interesting murder mystery. Who the fuck killed this guy? Who did he really rape her? Why are you know how did the how did the murder go down? Who's got the pearl dagger? Who got so there's a lot of just you know basic murder mystery bullshit, which is kind of fun. But I I love the way it's told. I think the music is really great. It, the music is really special, um, and it works so well with the with each shot. It's it's very Williams esque, uh, even obviously it's before John Williams was really great. But it works like almost like leitmotif and 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 uh, not just leitmotif though, because there's counterpoint and stuff too. So it it works really well with every shot. So I think there's that. There's the core. There's the metaphorical layer, obviously. Of Boo. I know he hates it, but there's a lot there. And then there's also these competing ideologies of. You're either you're out for yourself, you know, every man for himself, dog eats dog. Even they had a fucking dog as a symbolic thing in this film, which was good. You know, be the dog of, you know, every man for himself, or you actually are somewhat, I'm not going to say uh, altruistic, but optimistic. So I like that there's those ideologies that you can kind of think about at the end and ponder. Um, and, and I like the characters kind of embody those things. I like what, and again, this is very legend, tall tale, you know, folk tale, but I like when like specific characters, okay, the woodsman is one thing, the commoner is one thing, the priest is one thing. I know it's simplistic, but I like when it boils down to these kind of things mm. and you can break it down to these little, little boxes. <laughs> you know, one other moment of credit I will give this movie, just cause you kind of reminded me is that a lot of times when, um, I guess more recent movies are trying to do this sort of Rochamon effect. It feels more like they're padding runtime than actually telling uh-huh. a story yeah. or, you know, in a, you know, using it as a narrative device. It's more just, you know, we need to fill out time. Um, this one, I didn't really get a lot of time filling, even though I was bored. Well, you know, what's really <laughs> cool about this one is that it it's not about discovering who killed who. Yeah. It doesn't matter. No, it's That's not, a, not the deal. No, it's not yeah. a murder mystery. It's not Clue. It doesn't matter who killed him and where they killed him and how they killed him. It's about the idea that no one is truly reliable and yeah. that everyone is suspicious and no one is a true witness, um, yeah. which is fascinating. And that's a really cool thing. And I know Sean said there's, he's right. There's other examples of this, but in just that, you know, touch tone ability to everyone kind of look back at this one moment and say, this is where we can all kind of relate to. This is how these, these kind of all stemmed from this moment, at least, even though, yes, there was stuff before it is a really cool thing. So I do recommend this for literally everyone. I think even if you don't, if you're bored at certain moments, there's a lot to take in. Uh, there's a lot of just you can think about the themes and the and and think about oh what was different in the previous one versus this one. Uh, so you know, I mean tellings of those little stories within a story. So I think there's a lot there. Um, so again, eight out of ten, I recommend it. Especially again, if you're a film student, you have to watch it. You just do. If you're a storyteller, I know Sean hates that, but if you're a sound designer too, you got to watch this and and understand when not to use sound design. The lack of sound design, the lack of music, is really special, and, and the restraint in this movie is a special thing. So, again, I recommend it to everyone, filmmakers included. Tim, take it away. <clears throat> this movie was uh, this movie was like like taking medicine dry. You know, there's something there. There's something to take away. You know, I, I was enriched by the experience. I didn't enjoy yeah. it. I wouldn't say, um, you know, 
so there, there no water when you're swallowing the pill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just a jagged little pill. Yeah, it went down hard. Yeah, yeah. Why do you say that? What? Why do you say it went down hard? It just, you know, for the same reasons that you liked it, I didn't like it. I don't like stories that place people into convenient little boxes because that's not where people are. Yeah, it's um, not realistic. It, it isn't. No, no, no. And and so, like, you know, I just kind of, it felt like just, ah, it's another allegory. But it did have really interesting aspects to it. You know, there was a lot of really cool stuff to take away. It was a it was a great, uh, uh, a, a, you know, it was it was a, a newer kind of narrative, like Sean said. I don't know if he if he necessarily invented it, but for, in, as insofar as cinema goes, you know, jumping from perspective to perspective like that is kind of a new thing for for this era. Sure. So that's you know that's cool. So there's stuff. <laughs> you, yeah. know what I, you know what I mean? Like there's stuff here. So I figured I got that going for me. There's which stuff. Is nice. There's stuff here, and it's nice. Stuff. It's nice, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's not smooth for you. I understand the smooth. appeal. However, it's not for me. Um, and so, so you know, and that's that. That doesn't necessarily. Uh, uh, I say that a lot about, about a lot of things that I understand the appeal. However, it's not for me. But uh, <laughs> um. It, 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 does this make you want to watch another Kurosawa film? It does. Yeah, I, I really would like to watch like Seven Samurai and Dreams because I I don't see it. I kind of just don't get it because yeah, this okay. is supposed to be one of the greatest films yep. ever made. Everyone's and I understand. I and so that's why it's like you know dry medicine. It's like I understand what I'm I supposed think, to take away yeah. from this, but. I'm not enjoying it, and I think I, sh you know, I think right. that's yeah. kind of part of the. I think this is what I've been told: is that Rashomon is more influential. Obviously, and we've, we've discovered this recently. <laughs> it's it's structurally influential. But if you want an enjoyable movie, watch Seven Samurai, and that's yeah. why I think I was I was actually debating between those two. Mm -hmm. And what ultimately made me choose this one is because it was 88 minutes versus 200 minutes. <laughs> what a long 88. <laughs> Seven minutes. Samurai it was. is 200 minutes. <laughs> what a long 88 minutes this was. Yep. It was long. You know? uh, and we and took I, two bathroom breaks. And it was because we were. It was because everyone was in such convenient boxes that it got boring. Yep. I don't know. I don't agree with that necessarily. I, I wasn't bored. I was actually into it in a lot of moments. I was in the edge of my seat mm. for a few moments. I was so I liked, out of it. I was asleep in I, moments. I, I, <laughs> I know. I, I liked the fighting. I thought the fighting, it, it, some the, of it was really lame. The choreography but, I really enjoyed. But the, the grunginess of it was really cool. It reminded me of like a Game of Thrones fight where yeah. it was just. He's like literally throwing dirt in his face yeah. as he's trying to crawl away. Yeah. Oh my God. You felt like the, the vulgar. And vulgar is not maybe the right word. But I mean, there was like uh, some blood sport in there. There was like, yeah, it, it, it did. Visceral. Visceral is a better word. Well, yeah. And again, like we talked about though, it is, it's one of those things where like you can see where it influenced everything. I just don't understand how it got that influential to begin with. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. I, I do get it. I'm going to say I do get it. I think Kurosawa is a genius um, just by watching some of these shots and the storytelling capabilities and the way he marries music is pretty well, amazing. It's like watching, like, because this is early Kurosawa, right? Yes, it's pretty early. It's, yeah, it is. Pretty could, early? Yeah. It, well, before you watch his some main... of the earlier Kubrick stuff and you see glimpses of just like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. there's really something going on here. Yeah. But this, this overall product is, you know. It's. <sighs> Okay, understood. I, I I do again. I do. I disagree. I really do think this is somewhat smooth. Mm -hmm. It is not. 
action-packed, right? There is boring moments. There are long lulls. Yeah. But I think that's on purpose. It's, it's a meditative I, film. Well, like, I loved Woman in the Dunes. That was way longer than this with way longer lulls. Do you way think it's because you like the desert? No, I think it's because <laughs> the people... No, the characters in that story were not convenient. Okay. You know, and it's so true. I'm learning about these human people. They are way instead more human, of, for instead sure. Instead of watching caricature A do blue, 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 yeah. blue, blue. Okay. You know, Plug I get bored archetypes. with that shit fast. I agree. You know? I think what's interesting to me about this one is that, yes, there's the caricature element, but you can point to them and be like, what's real and what's not? So when you're watching the retelling and Toshiro Mifune is going exaggerated, you're like, wait a minute, is he exaggerating in his storytelling yeah. element or is he actually acting yeah. silly? And that's the medicine part for me because I, cool. I get that. I see what you're saying. You know, you're doubting yourself. Which no, is I what the see, movies, no, no, no. I see what you're sorry. saying. I just didn't experience it watching it. Yeah. I just think it's a really cool idea, the the doubting of yourself. And I think especially if you have a discussion like we did in the beginning, where we literally went through the movie and went through a Rashomon effect ourselves is a pretty damn cool thing. Yeah, we actually that was fun. experienced it in real time while discussing the film is- That was some wacky shit. It's wacky. And I like that out of control feeling when I'm watching a film sometimes. It makes me feel like the film has has got me. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I really dug some elements of this. Even when I was out of sorts, I mm -hmm. liked that. For um, sure. Either, okay. So anyways, we we went through that. Let's uh let's do some recommendations. Yeah. Uh Sean, you got anything to recommend recently? Uh I did Ford versus Ferrari today. That was uh oh, that, that was pretty damn enjoyable. Um even if you already know the story and it's a pretty well wrong story um it's a good telling of it and enjoyable performances um just good characters and a good story and like you know uh worth checking out my biggest gripe is um uh who's the guy that's not matt damon the other white guy christian bale yeah that guy he is basically doing a john oliver impression the entire movie which kind of okay. jars me a bit um like but, that accent yeah yeah the accent like there's like the there British. are notes that he hits that are just okay. so i'm john oliver and he's got this like sort of just he just nails that tone that, wow really yeah it's, i can't even like imagine yep. christian bale doing that well christian bale's well that's the magic of christian bale yeah, yeah. though it's yeah. like every time he does something it's like man i can't imagine him doing that. I yeah. bet, uh, but the thing is those guys the people from the uk can do american accents so well oh yeah um they, yeah. like you know so many years i don't think people knew that guy from house was british oh no you know? worry yeah he just Stephen does it so fry well. exactly <laughs> Um, also, Wales pretty close to Liverpool, so that's uh, yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah. yeah, I wonder how close. No, I don't think that's very close because I've heard him in interviews, and he, he doesn't oh, sound mean, like um, John Oliver. Well, in I meant geographically. Oh. <laughs> I just mean he probably knows a lot of people from Liverpool. You oh yeah, yeah, the accent. That's all. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I I have no idea how, whether it was authentic or not. It just felt weird. Because what was the, how was the movie? <laughs> yeah, why are we talking about these accents? So that's the big part of the movie. No, I know, but, just no. I, you said the the movie was great. I thought it was the the driving scenes were exceptionally well done. Wow, um, I thought that was they were really engaging. I'm almost debating going back and seeing it again in 4D just so I can yeah. experience the driving again. Oh, you you've like been seeing a, you've been seeing a lot of stuff in theaters lately. Uh, yeah, well, I've been doing because I I haven't been conversely I haven't been going at all. Oh, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So so that's why I'm kind of curious is because like you've seen all this stuff that I kind of want to go see. Nah. Um, but uh, that's why we do the recommendations yeah. part, Tim. Yep. Well, no, I know what I was going to do is I was going to start picking. You know, so what else have you seen in theaters recently? 
Oh, geez. I've seen a lot of crap. Uh, I Harriet? Saw, uh, you saw Harriet. Harriet? I did see Harriet. Um, Harriet was very disappointing. Um, Harriet is a, uh, the, the story of Harriet Tubman is a great and classic American story that just doesn't have the reverence in this telling. One of my biggest gripes with this version of Harriet was they concentrated a lot on her being... I don't know if you want to call it clairvoyant or talking to God, but basically anytime a problem uh, came up, she would fall down to her knees and start chanting to God. And then she would stand up and be able to solve the problem. So it almost turned, turned oh, her wow. into like a superhero mm -hmm. that almost didn't have her own agency. It like took away like most of the heroism that she was actually achieving because it's just kind of God's telling her where to go and driving her like a drone. Interesting. My problem with Moses, everyone gives Moses all this credit. Mm. It's really mm. God, guys. Yeah. That's all, that's all I am. <laughs> What'd you think of Parasite? Did you like Parasite? Did we already talk about that? Parasite's really good. Yeah. Parasite's, that's, yeah, that's probably. That's one I've been wanting to watch. That's that's definitely one of the best I've seen in a while, even, even with the star reduction for having to read subtitles. Uh, that one is still pretty up there. Hmm. Um, and The Mandalorian, we both watched episode one. Mm -hmm. um, it's prob there's Disney probably going to be a bunch of episodes come out before this, though. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, it's, it's worth a watch. Yeah, it's a little, so far. A little Doctor Who-y, but... Uh, yeah. I haven't seen it. I, if you like Westerns, it's pretty much a spaghetti Western in space. Yeah. Um, the idea sounds cool. It's just like, man, I'm not getting Disney Plus. If somebody, I, I almost don't want to get it. I, I like, no, I, I don't want to give I Disney hate, any more money. Yeah, Disney I sucks. hate the idea that all these different fucking companies are like tightening their little sphincters yep. up and charging a specific fee for their fucking shit. It's just, it's so, it's like, Pirating is about to come back because of this yep. shit. Yeah. Um, but uh, but also on Amazon Prime, uh, Jack Ryan season two <laughs> oh, is very okay. It is, <laughs> it is aggressively adequate. Is that what dude from the office? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's where uh, Jim Halpert yeah. picks up a guy. Yeah. So the first season, I actually, so I, I'm partial to the Bango Boom stuff. I grew up watching war movies with my dad and mm -hmm. I, you know, the, and uh, it just rubbed off on me. I like it. And, you know, I like the adventure stuff too. And I, I genuinely enjoy Tom Clancy. Um, so the first season of Jack Ryan comes out and it's like, oh, cool. I was, I was genuinely excited for it. I liked it a lot. I thought it humanized, um, it humanized, uh, people that aren't often humanized in like Western media and, in like asked some, some important questions while kind of, uh, portraying like a problematic genre, hmm. uh, overall. But the second season was a lot more just like this time it's personal, but, you know, I also watched it over the course of two days and didn't complain, so. I was going to tell you to not see Midway, but based on that description, you might actually like it. I might, dude. <laughs> I might. I might. Because I do, you know, I, I, I either like really dry philosophical bullshit or, or bang boom. You know? I was going to ask questions about Midway because it's. Uh, yeah. Who's in that? Who did that? Roland Emmerich. Yeah, the only name in it is like Woody Harrelson. I mean, you don't really recognize mm. anyone else. Um, to me, it was a piece of crap, big budget, green screen, mm. uselessness. Oh. Um, but, I hate green screen. Yeah, it's a lot of green screen. Um, but one thing is they, um, there's a lot of like, 
everyone was a hero sort of stuff. Mm. So there's a lot of like, um, you how know, much Japanese perspective is there's there? There's a lot of Japanese perspective. Oh, there is. Yeah. No, uh, in nowhere, uh, definitely more American perspective, but we, there's no real villainization of anyone. So did you see mm. the Clint Eastwood films, um, with, with the dual perspectives of Iwo Jima? Flags of Our oh, Fathers no, no, and um, something about Iwo Jima. Yeah. Letters from Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima. Uh, they were great. I really I recommend them, especially CIO. Letters from Iwo Jima. It's all from the Japanese perspective. It's mm. fucking amazing. It's actually one, probably one of Clint Eastwood's best films, my favorite of his wow. films, um, because it's not super jingoistic, actually. Which Better is, than Mystic River. Yeah. Ah, uh, and better what? Ah, uh, they're both pretty depressing, but- uh, Better than The Mule? I, I just like Mystic River. Mystic River's great. What'd you say, Sean? Better than The Mule. <laughs> oh god. Better than the mule. Better than uh Better than Gran Torino. Gran Torino. Yeah. I love both of those movies. Yeah, better than no, I can say it. <laughs> <laughs> I can say it. <laughs> yeah. I'm allowed. Yeah. Yeah. Coming soon this summer, Clint Eastwood in. No, I can say it. I just think the in midway thing, I'm curious because you know, where, who's the audience for as an American audience? Are they trying to? Based on the um, production title cards, Chinese audience. That's what I mean, because <laughs> if they go too crazy with the Japanese stuff, yeah, it's yeah. anti-China. There, there was a, a weird sort of jammed in section of the movie that stood out from everything else that was definitely... Um, uh, while taking place on China and sort of glorifying the relationship between China and America during this time. What was it? Do you remember? What's that? What was the part in the movie? Do you remember the part? Oh, I mean, it's basically like um, some scout planes uh, crash on in Chinese land or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. It's Chinese land that is occupied by the Japanese. Um, so they're kind of like trepidatious or whatever. But then like when they find out that one of them killed some Japanese people, they're all like, oh, yeah, you're good. You're good. You're with us. So like, you know, they there was like this kind of, uh, you know, building up of the relationships. Gotcha. Um, but it was completely out of place in those scenes yeah. where like the only scenes that take place on land or anywhere near trees. You know, what's really <laughs> funny is if I was a Chinese censor, I would, I would do exactly that. Cause I would look and be like, okay, what part of Midway has the Chinese? <laughs> and it's really not really part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Midway's all takes place near Hawaii. But the thing is there's a, here's the Doolittle raid, which yep. I think is what it they is, were doing. Yeah, exactly. Do and the Doolittle raid had to crash in mainland China because yeah. there, there was no way to turn around and come back to the aircraft carriers. So that's, the only thing that involved China I could see, and I'm sure they played that up. Yep. And by the way, is Woody Harrelson Doolittle? Yeah. Of course he is. Oh, no, no, no. Woody Harrelson is Nimitz. Oh, he's Nimitz? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alec Baldwin plays Doolittle in Pearl Harbor, which I think is mm. probably another piece of shit movie like this. Yeah. Uh, Pearl Harbor's better. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Careful. Man, I fucking hate that movie. It's yeah. bad. It's bad. Pearl Harbor Wasn't that a Michael Bay picture? It's yeah. a Michael Bay. Yeah. I'm trying to sing a song from South Park. There is way more heart in Pearl Harbor than in Midway. Oof, that's hey. rough. Okay, guys. I think we're about uh, ready to, to end this baby. Yeah, yeah. Uh, British History Podcast, Jamie Jeffers. Oh, also, don't do, don't see Dr. Sleep. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, Eric Clapton's kid fell out of a window. Just in case you forgot. Oh, Eric. We're... We're ending this one with maximum effort. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, make sure you check out all the shows on the podcast network. They're we great. Text before calling. Going down on South Park. Literally, 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 liter
Alex Hingering, and uh, this show, Cellulite yeah. Breakdown. Uh, you can donate to us at uh, patreon.com slash Fawcast. Or F-A-U-C-A-S-T. Or you can go to Fawcast.com slash shop and purchase yourself a wonderful Fawcast yeah. or Cellulite Breakdown mug and or a t-shirt and or skirt. Um, there's all sorts of random crap you can get our logo on. Uh, most of the extra proceeds go to helping fund this loveliness in your ears. Yeah. Um, yeah, join us, won't you? Artistic endeavors and stuff. If you got a pick, also email us. We want to know what movies you guys oh, want to yeah, watch. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what? If you've got something that you want us to watch. Pre-1960. Yeah, send it in to us. Because, you know, we're always looking for new stuff to watch. And and it'd be great. It would be really really cool if we could actually get a viewer to to, Come to on. give us an idea, or even call in, or call in. Honestly, yeah, that'd be great too. Yeah, you maybe. know. And while you're at it, you know, go to my Instagram at <laughs> timothy.j.snow. I do bad art. Yeah, do that, guys. You can hit us up at celluloid breakdown on the twitters, or I am on the tweets at uh, text before calling Mr. Joseph Bonnier at J O E B O N I E R at the Twitters. Um, and yeah, send us your pick. Let us know what you want. Send us a little voicemail if you want, and we'll play it on the show. Tell us we were wrong. Tell us we were right. Tell us how much you hate the show. Whatever. If you just yeah. want to hear your voice on the internet, send it on over. And Hold stop on. by my house, you know, I'll tell you that story. Only I got one more, one more request. One more request, uh, guys. I, please subscribe. You know, that does help us. I know this is lame, but just hit the subscribe button. Yeah. That way you won't have to keep checking us, in it on it. It lets us know you're listening and it makes us feel good, you know. This is also for my mom, uh, who, who isn't really great with computers. I have to kind of make sure she subscribes. Oh, so she I, doesn't, you know. Yeah. So mom, press the subscribe button. Yeah, press the subscribe button. My mom, I hope, doesn't listen to this. Oh, I'm going to tell her. To I really hope my mother doesn't listen to this. Why? No, I don't know. She'd be proud of you. <laughs> Would it, she? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Next time you- I mean, uh, she's proud of me anyways. But uh, I also want to plug uh, uh, an artist that I've been getting into a lot uh, recently. Again, um, Jandek is a folk singer from the- like Came around in the late 70s, released an LP from nowhere- in 1978, and he's released like 60 LPs since then. The gentleman will suspend. The gentleman will suspend. I will suspend. 